everybody, and welcome back to the Chiluminati Podcast, episode 219. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the thuggin' and buggin' enterprises of L.A. What in the hell? Jesse, Alex, and Gerard. What does any what of is that the mean? thuggin' and buggin' enterprises the of L.A.? thuggin' buggin' enterprises of L.A.? Mathis, what are you talking about? It's a WWE thing. They're thuggin' and buggin'? They're some of the worst, one of the worst trios in WWE history. <laughs> Why <laughs> would you? <laughs> thuggin' <laughs> buggin' enterprises. Teddy Long managed a few wrestlers in the 2000s. And his best role as general manager with uh, the duo Thuggin' and Buggin' Enterprises, Mark Henry and Rodney Mack. This is, this is, uh, I, I gotta tell you guys, this is such a specific reference. It's from the year 2003 to 2004. It is a, it <laughs> is a, it? It is a faction <laughs> that lasted about a year, maybe extra change. I I couldn't even tell you when when he said it. I thought he was just doing like an L.A. bit. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Is there is there is there th- who are the three who are the three guys? It's D'Lo Brown. Okay, uh, Mark Henry. You have Jazz, who's who's an amazing wrestler. Jazz, yeah, managed by Theodore Long. Also, for whatever reason, you've got uh, Rosie, who is to give you an idea. Rosie is related is uh is related to Roman Reigns, who's the current. WWE Rosie Reigns? No, his name is Rosie. <laughs> his name is Rosie, but he's like related to Roman Reigns, I believe. I think it might be. I think he might be Roman Reigns' uncle slash dad. I think it's uncle. Amazing. They're all related to The Rock in the end. <laughs> and then freaking Christopher Nowinski, this the white guy who basically figured out about CTE and and uh, he like why- became a brain scientist later. Yeah, correct, correct. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's actually a great that's actually a great segue, uh, and, and 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 honestly, I'm I'm happy is that it? we've yeah it is it really is it yes, really is I know, I know what Alex is talking about it really is and it also confirms my suspicion today about how this episode was going to go with regards to mentioning wrestling history and having like a living encyclopedia of information to just regurgitate things back at me that and so I was kind of hoping on that when writing my outline so I hope that. That uh, that works out today. Just, just just in case. Hi everyone. My name is Gerard. I'm the completionist. I've been friends with these boys for years. I am T- not time, Alex. T- time out, I'm not time out. Alex. Whoa, 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 Gerard, Gerard. Time Usually out. Alex has a nice big intro. You can't introduce yourself on the show. I feel terrible right now. <laughs> no, Alex has got it. Alex has got it. I, I promise. Okay, I, I just, it, it. it just seemed like we were jumping right into the story. Sorry, I just wanted no, to like just, throw it out there. Every episode, I whip out a weird duo for them, and I knew you were going to be on the episode, so I went gotcha. for a weird trio, and it was specifically WWE. You can't introduce yourself. One of us has to do that at least. Gotcha. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Guys, I'd like to introduce to you a man who I've known for over a decade, a man who I've done my whole coming up in this business with a man who has been with me in thousands probably of videos on the internet a man who then superseded his own youtube channel and became a youtube video game man like for the world on television uh, a wrestling fan of a, a lubega fan a video game fan the best <laughs> the best the best shovel knight player that i know personally this is him. You know him. He's like my other guy. He's like my internet husband. Gerard Khalil's here on the premises. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex's internet husband. After all this time. He is. Oh, the conspiracies can be put to rest. Alex and Gerard are indeed the same person. We have different voices. We have different voices. We don't sound the same. 
Everyone who listens to Chaluminati thinks that I'm on the podcast. This is my no. first. Your name has never once, except for episode 219, been on any of these episodes. I'm here to tell everyone that this is my first appearance ever, and this is the first time you're hearing my voice. I am not Alex Fossiani. Please stop tweeting at me that I am on the podcast. I am not on Chaluminati. In keeping with conspiracies in the nature of the show, is he? Is this real? Is he telling the truth? <laughs> we, we have yes. a, we were we were inserting an AI fourth host. Yeah, yeah. and if you and about. if you haven't guessed if you haven't guessed what uh, today's episode is about i got something to say to you right now first of all i'd like to thank the many many fans throughout this country that wrote cards and letters to patreon.com slash pod when i was down technically i want to stake one rich person who will eventually sign up for our ten thousand dollar tier for waiting and taking the time because you know how important it is because jesse cox michael martin and alex faciani the american dream will give you what you've always wanted ad free episodes i don't have to say a lot more about the way i feel about ad free episodes no ads no commercials there are no ads at that tier in the first place they fought off the hard times for Alex Faciani and his ads at that tier in the first place. You don't know what the hard times are, Daddy. Hard times is when Daddy? no one signs up for any of our tiers, and the show doesn't come out, and we got three or four hosts and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when no one signs up for our mini so tier, and we're out of work, and they tell us, go home. Hard times are when a show has been coming out now for five years, five years, and no one signs up for video minisodes, our movie commentary show, Rotten Popcorn, or Monthly Digital Art, and they kick us in the butt, and they say, hey, a copy of Armored Core 6 took your place, Daddy. That's hard times. That's hard times. And Rick Flair. This makes me uncomfortable. And Rick Flair. You put hard times on this country by taking dusty roads out. That's hard times. Now I admit, I don't look how podcast hosts today are supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My honey's just a little big. But brother, I'm bad. And they know I'm bad. And there are two bad people. One of them is Mothman. And he's dead, brother. But the other one's right here. Nature Boy. Patreon.com slash Pod. The world's greatest website belongs to these people. I'm going to reach out right now. I want you at home to know my hand is judging your hand for this gathering of the biggest body of Chaluminots in this country, in this universe, all over the world now, reaching out because the love that was given us in this time, I will repay you now because we will be the next heavyweight podcast of these hard times. Patreon.com slash Pod. Hello, Gerard. Welcome to the show. In case, in case none of you at home knew what that was, that was Alex Fasciani embodying Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, in his infamous promo about hard times. And trying to appeal to the everyman. That was incredible, Alex. Yeah, I appreciate that. Now, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask everyone on the show sure. uh, when they come on the show. What is, your atti- what, is your, what is your attitude towards the paranormal? Has anyone you know or you yourself, besides us, obviously, who talk about this shit all the time on the show, ever experienced anything they can't complain? What's up with uh, explain? Can't complain. Don't, don't complain. No, can't explain. I do not personally believe in the paranormal. I do believe that people see and experience paranormal things, but I think there's a scientific explanation for it. I'll be whether they they have like a weird medical thing going on or they ha- haven't slept in a long time, whatever it is. That's that's my stance, which is like 90 percent of cases of people who are like sleep paralysis. <laughs> okay. that's, where, that's, that's where I stand, Alex. What about aliens? I believe there are aliens. I just don't think they're as like as plain Jane as we think. I don't. Do you have I, any? Do you have any like family alien sightings, ghost stories, anything, any weird story like that? No, your I families nothing. are all pretty skeptic. Yeah, my my family's very skeptic. We don't we don't talk about. One of the three hosts here has had a personal experience now, and it's not me, which makes me upset. Mathis is mad because when we were when we were in IndiePopCon, 
somebody came and jiggled my handle at like three in the morning on my hotel room door after uh, Chad Tronic and his poor wife were like getting accosted by a ghost all weekend. Were they? Uh, shout out to Missy. I'm so sorry, you guys. Yeah, Chad. Chad will be on the uh, episode on the show in about a month. Yeah, but like, well, the story I don't want to spoil. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to yeah, spoil yeah. it. I don't want to spoil weird. it too much. But we will talk about it when Chad comes yeah. on here. His I wife just, would not sleep in the room anymore. Yeah, she it was gone. like it was like some real stuff. Like I, I saw her. She was that was fear. That was real. And she's a skeptic. Like yeah, she totally. was not a believer. And she was so in the zone that she like refused to go to sleep and hung out with us even more. What do you what do you think your dad's gonna do, Gerard, if aliens turned out turn out to be real, like and they've been with us for what, eight years? What would my dad do? How's he gonna react? Yeah. Oh man, if like if like one came to him or he saw it on the news. He's sitting at home, he's watching whatever news channel he watches, and uh he uh he's he's sitting there and uh Lee somebody Bob comes on screen. Somebody yeah, somebody comes on the screen and it's like but Joe Biden, like, it's real. It's yeah. chewy, it's all real. My my dad would you say it's uh, chewy, chewy. You know, like when Han Solo. It's from Star Wars. Oh, oh, I thought you meant like it's he always like, been real, like, gummed on their skin or something. We're was home, like, falling We're asleep home. trying to like take a taste. I if my dad saw an alien on TV, he would say one of two things. He would say it's bullshit or it's bullshit. Or if he had a chance to meet one, he'd go, Gerard, come on, grab the stick, let's go. We go, <laughs> we go find. Get in the car, we go find. He so he's like, brave. He's brave. He's like, he's like, my, he's, my dad would, my dad would be like, I show you a lesson. He's not real. Watch. Come with me. I take stick. <laughs> we go, go fight the alien. We go beat, we beat the shit. It's man in gray, man in gray masks. Come on. I show you. I, Honestly, I teach that's you. A, that's the guy I would recruit. That's the kind of guy I want next to me. I'm like, I need <laughs> he could you be to be a ghostbuster. The ghost. <laughs> like, yeah. Go ghostbuster, beat them into submission uh, as they like bleed green. I would wait to see what happened. Yeah. I gotta be honest. I would be like, I kind of want to see what's going to. Either he beats them and their guys in mess, or the aliens vaporize them. Either way, I'll have answers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's really a binary decision there. We're going to walk away satisfied. I, I think no matter what, no matter what happens, if my dad gets murdered by an alien, he will take one of them, if not all of them, with him. <laughs> That's fair. Like, he, he wants blood. There is no, there is, there, like, he, he, he will prove to the, to the world that aliens exist. While also, while, while also eradicating the aliens, like there will not, they existed for maybe twenty four hours, and then my dad made sure they never came back ever again. Is that, you're, they found the Klingons if they found yeah. your dad. He's the only one protecting us. Inside your dad's locker is that like galaxy from Orion's Belt. Black <laughs> three or two. Okay, so flipping it back on us, I personally never really watched wrestling. A lot as a kid, but lots of people mm, that I know yeah. did watch wrestling a lot. I lived through N64, the Attitude Era. So it was like very, like, it was like beyond wrestling itself. Wrestling was probably the biggest it yeah. was in the world when we were kids. And uh, so I have a meager working knowledge. I know the names. Uh, I don't know what Mathis and Jesse's vibes are on it. Jesse, I remember one time you were going deep with a cabbie in Boston about the Montreal screw job, but I don't know how deep you go. I don't know how deep you go. I am a big wrestle fan from like the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, when I was in high school, we were being silly goofballs and watching every pay-per-view mm -hmm. and we'd like somehow by the end of the pay-per-view be just beating the crap out of each other, That's which vibes. is, you know, a thing, a thing young men do. And, um, we, yeah, I, you know, I was all about 
Stone Cold and The Rock and Generation X and, you know, like uh, the uh, whatever the hell The Undertaker had with like Gangrel <laughs> and like the. So you're so you're going to you know, know ministry. Yeah, you're going to know some like of the stuff we talk about amazing today. Amazing and flames and fire and it, that, like that stuff. Um, you know, when it was. And yeah. W.O. Yeah, NWO, both red and black, like yeah, all the different Wolfpack. things. Plus WCW when like Goldberg was in WCW and like Sting would mm-hmm. come down for the reference. We loved all of that. And yeah. then uh, somewhere in college, I sort of fell off because I was more about like, hopefully a girl wants to see my ding dong rather than wrestling. <laughs> wrestling kind of like fell off too for a little bit. I, th- I think that was. That's yeah, probably true. Once, once John Cena and Batista took us into the, the what, what is called um, the Ruthless Aggression era. Like, basically, wrestling as a whole kind of became stagnant from, like, 2008 to, like, 2013 or 14. Um, Because John Cena essentially became the face of wrestling with Batista. And um, and in in a weird way, you had the the rise of another WCW kind of rival show in Impact Wrestling. um, With Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins, who eventually would go on to... To uh, own a part of it now, I think he's completely out. But um, That's fascinating, yeah. Jeff Jarrett started it, and then uh, it became an alternative. But like, it didn't nearly grow as as popular as as WCW was. I think it was around the time that Kurt Angle they started like really force Kurt oh, yeah. Angle on the world. And I uh, something about that whole period. Like I I know Batista obviously, mm-hmm. but I never have once seen him wrestle. So I clearly missed that entire part. Of the wrestling world. Same thing with Cena, honestly, until recently. And I, I only really started yeah, yeah, yeah. seeing it as back when it was like New Day. But that's maybe because I'm a video game guy. Yeah. Mathis, nothing? No wrestling? My experience, yeah, it, may, it surprised absolutely nobody. Um, I, my experience with wrestling was almost exclusively through video games as a kid, through N64 games. Yep. I'm 50, I was honestly 50-50 on you being like 100% in. Yeah, the, I was unfortunately that autistic kid that'd be like, I don't get it, it's not real. And I would just be like, mm. try to shit on people's fun, that my friend's fun. Because I'm like, it's all fake. You know, it's all fake. And it's like, it's like that guy fake, that's like, obviously. Superman, Superman has no challenges. It didn't take me until I was like in my 20s to like appreciate what wrestling actually is and not like see it as this actual like fighting competition in a way. Like like you would UFC or something. And I, You're coming at it all wrong. Like when I, know, I, I, know I, I liked did. wrestling I, I because wrestling, wrestling totally was like. Wrong. A man came out of a coffin and flames exploded. Right. I was there yeah. for the drama, the that's dramatic what I, yeah. displays that's, of like aggression. Yes. That's and, what I get now. Oh, like beautiful. that's what I should have been looking at as a kid. But as a kid, I was too much on the like again. I was just like I didn't get it. It didn't make yeah. sense to me. I'm like this, is, and, but the, and my, the, my friends would all treat it as very real and stuff. And you know, of course, they were like, it's, "We know it's not real, dude." But it's like not about that. I'm like, I don't get it. But now, you know, in my 20s, I'm like, I figured it out. And it, it was really the scene of Batista era that even made me realize it was like would that kind of came around and i was like oh oh okay i think i get it now because i'm not a dumb kid i like understand it yeah it's still athleticism it's still people yeah. that, like it's a in performance shape. yeah yeah but it's a performance those dudes break their bodies in half like absolutely yeah. like i fully respect and if if i was if i understood that as a kid i feel like i would have been on the other side of that coin alex where i would have been all just in. all in. If it was yeah, real, yeah, Stone yeah, exactly. Cold would have killed Vince McMahon like seven times over. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would have died many times. If, if wrestling was real, real, as far as we know, The Rock's cousin Rikishi was the one that ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin and broke his neck. How did he get out of jail, Triple, man? Triple H was the one who, who paid Rikishi to do so. 
and Stone. And we all saw it live on television. Live on television. And, and Mr. McMahon has died in an exploding limo at least no less than three times. Dude, I just the owner, the owner of the the WWE has exploded in the limousine in some fashion at least at least three times. He's dead. He's no longer with us, but he is died on screen. The, my, my wrestling knowledge from that era comes exclusively from video games. So I remember like Booker T, the clown, Ding Dong, Dingo. What is his name? Oh, uh, uh, Doink. 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 Which clown, by the way, yeah. for those of you wondering, like there is one person who played Doink exclusively. That was his career. But throughout the <laughs> 80s and 90s wrestling, like there was someone who like jokingly there always must clown. be a doink yeah. like yeah, the stick. there there was oh there was God. that for a while now wow. it's one dude but before it was like there you was know. a doink the clown that there was honestly wild. was like yeah, yeah. there's honestly was like a 50-50 that like behind me like in an alternate timeline like instead of like every dc comic was like just a giant Doink Stardust yeah. Shrine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Gold <laughs> dust. Mankind sock signed or whatever. That's mankind, right? The guy who had the sock yeah. puppet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, I Mick love Foley. him. He was on he was on uh Killer. Uh, Boy Meets World, and that's how I knew I know yes. uh, him. So yep. there, the wrestling the, the funniest thing about wrestling when we were kids is not even so much and it still happens to this day, is that wrestlers nowadays because sitcoms are kind of come and gone, like you see yeah. you see you see wrestlers on things like Family Feud, Price is right. Um, they have like wrestling editions, so it's like really fun to see that as real people. But you used to see them in in television sitcoms all the time. So and they'd always have that yearly wrestling episode. So like, yeah, they'd have like Vader or like Goldberg or or whoever appear into the storyline yeah. of wrestling. Was, he was like one of the kids' dads. It was like the storyline yeah. of Boy Meets World. It was yeah, totally yeah, yeah. The, the end. You got like saw some WWE match, and then they had a dance on the inner ring. That's yeah. what I watched as a kid. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It was World. crazy seeing the under. Undertaker like finally break character on camera like last year. Oh man! So the the, the Undertaker retired during the pandemic, and yeah. uh, now for the first time ever, he's like he has a sh- uh, a show. He's called, like, hey man, I'm cool. Yeah, he has a show <laughs> called the One Dead. Uh, the it's like called the One Dead Man Show, where he like does a one man show but talks about his career. That's um, awesome. And for the first, and it, oh, he's definitely getting there. Oh, how he's got to be in his he's 60s, 50 right? plus for sure. I don't yeah, know. How yeah, old he is, I thought though. it was in the 60s, 70s. Maybe, he was but. born. He was born in 1965, which makes him 58 years old. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, he's, guy, been, it, he's been he's been a wrestler forever. Yeah. If I remember it, I have to get you to give me the the link to those fucking uh, cameos. Oh my god, guys! So I can put it in the show notes guys, for everybody. When Jesse, <laughs> you're gonna laugh your ass off during the pandemic when the Undertaker was doing his goodbye tour. They, the WWE ran a promotion where people could pay cameos for the really <laughs> Undertaker, and all of them, all of them are like, <laughs> it's like, Brian, this is the Undertaker. Your mother wants to let you know that she believes in you and wants you to, to go to school and, and to brush your teeth. Rest in peace. <laughs> hopefully all your, hopefully all your teachers will rest yeah, in peace. Somebody who died? Yes, there's, there's like, there's like, someone made a compilation of them on YouTube, all of them together, and there's oh. two or three where the Undertaker breaks because what is being asked <laughs> it's to too say funny yeah it's too funny he it congratulates like fu- a 91 year old lady on her birthday yeah, like, he's like you made it to 91 years old 
What an amazing feat. Your career is just as long as The Undertaker's. Hopefully you never rest. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It is okay. phenomenal. So, yeah. So with that, we all we all love wrestling. We think it's awesome. Let's get into the meat of this. Here are what I'm calling the three weirdest wrestling enigmas. Get it? WWE, because I'm a genius. Hey. Enigma. The three weirdest wrestling enigmas of all time, according to the Chiluminati. Ready? Let's complete it. Stop, no. Oh. Don't, don't do that. Please, no. Wait, quick, Dean, edit the intro to the completion. No, 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 don't, don't. Also, also, uh, warning, this episode is rated M for this is usually the type of disturbing stuff that Mathis talks about in serial killer episodes. Yay. Because some of the stuff we're going to be covering today, pretty heavy. If you know anything about wrestling, you probably heard a lot of this stuff before. You can probably guess some of the things that I'm going to talk about. But it's still, like, just to give you some warnings at the top, we're going to be talking about substance abuse, we're going to be talking about suicide, we're going to be talking about murder, traumatic deaths, and <gasps> adultery. You've been warned, but not this first one. This first one is very light. Uh, so, are you ready, Gerard? Yes, sir. Because you're going to be our guest reader, you're going to be our armchair expert today. You can find him online uh, later at uh, youtube.com slash completionist. Click the bell, make sure you don't miss a single video. Check him out on there. Check him out. He's, he's, he's pretty good. He's up and coming. He's, he's popping man. off. Just try my best. Uh, try my best. We got to help yeah. these young kids out these days, you know. YouTube's a tough, tough game nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So first, let's just get this one out of the way right now. Has Chris Jericho contacted the paranormal? Uh, I guess to get us started, if you don't know who Chris Jericho is... I have a few facts here for us, and then Gerard, you can jump in if there's Gerard's more. Gerard's gonna be my canary in the coal mine because, like, yeah. if you say something, I'm gonna watch his reaction to know where this is. <laughs> really quick, right? Can I tell you who Chris Jericho is? Uh, yeah. In, when I was in high school, my friend Mike Putney loved Chris Jericho. Obviously, he break yeah. the walls down. Here's the break thing: break the walls down. My dad, every time Chris Jericho would show up on TV, he would say, and I quote, "I don't like that guy. He seems like an asshole." So that's all you need to know about Chris Jericho. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, well, you just made the list. Yes. Uh, uh, wow, he's an I'm American. I'm so impressed by you, Alex, and the, and the amount of, of research you've done so far. Dude, I'm a, I'm a wrestling fan now. I, he, he's an American. He's an American Canadian wrestler. Uh, Chris Jericho is currently signed with AEW. He's a really excellent technical wrestler. He's got like this kind of like rock star presence vibe to him with like big long hair. He has a band called Fosse. That's true. Uh, he. He, he he continues the rock star vibe out into press tours. That's his kind of real vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the band's called Fozzy. It has like five hundred. It has like a gold records or silver platinum it's records very or something. Very, a very popular band that came from his career yeah. as a wrestler. He's been around uh, as a wrestler since the '90s. He was with ECW, WCW. He became the first undisputed WWF champion. Can I ask a question that's probably not directly related? But how often yeah. do do wrestlers? when their career ends, spin off into other careers. Because we know All the, the big ones, like Batista and Cena and, uh, and the, Rock. Know, uh, the Rock, obviously. But, like... All the time. Do, is it very common for, like, a lot of people end up end going off and doing other things successfully? Mo when you... Sorry, oh, go ahead, yeah. Jesse. No, I was just saying, like, uh, Gerard probably definitely knows this better than me, but it's not necessarily they became an actor or someone famous. A lot sure, of the time sure. it's like they opened a chain restaurant. Yeah, or they exactly. like went okay, on to sell cool. cars or something. Like they do things for sure. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Went on to become a brain surgeon. The Godfather yeah. owns a titty bar in Vegas. <laughs> well, of course he does. I've never that's seen so that. Perfect. Dilo, that's so Dilo perfect. D'Lo Brown was his bouncer for many years. I don't know if it's the, is it at the, his titty bar. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you yeah, walk yeah. in and D'Lo Brown's at the yeah, fucking door. Mess with the real deal from now. the fucking tug chuggers. What are they called? The bug chuggers. What are they? What, what the fuck? The bugging, uh, tucking, tucking, bugging, bugging. The tuggers, tugging and bugging. The TC Tuggers? The TC Tuggers. 
That's the machine the aliens have. I think it's literally, yeah. it's literally called the, or I don't know what it's called actually. Is it in Vegas? I don't know. I know. I know that he owned one. I do remember that. Anyway, Chris Jericho. You guys remember the the Mexicals? What? What is that? Another trio. Is it another WWE trio? Games. Get the fuck out of here. All right. <laughs> Chris Jericho was the first undisputed WWF champion, the last holder of the WCW World Heavyweight Championship in 2001 when he beat Steve Austin and The Rock on the, the same night. The first ever undisputed champion. Yeah, that's right. He was a six time world champion, nine time inter- intercontinental champion, triple crown champion, Grand Slam champion mm-hmm. before he left WWE in 2018 and became part of New Japan. Grand Pro Slam Wrestling, is, by the way, in case you're wondering, is when you win every single championship possible in that organization. It's like, yeah, it's like doing the, the gauntlet. The, uh, yeah. What do you call it? The EGOT. Um, yeah. And then. Uh, he was a founding member uh, of AEW in 2019. He was the first ever AEW World Champion mm-hmm. and the Ring of Honor World Champion. He had a career total 35 championships, 10 Intercontinental Championships so far. He's still like probably on the best run of his life right now at 50, 51 years old, something like that. He was in Dancing with the Stars one time. He hosted a game show on ABC one time called Downfall, where they drop shit off of a building if you didn't get questions right. Um, if you remember that, it was I like do a not remember belt, that, but thing. I feel like I, I wish I, sh- I should remember that. Very wasteful. Uh, also, he has an extremely long-running uh, podcast that I want to get on called Talk is Jericho, where he often brings on extremely fringe people like Coast to Coast or Chiluminati Podcast or something to so talk about all there. kinds of crazy, Manifest paranormal, chaos magic. supernatural stuff. He's got like a thousand episodes. It's nuts. Wow. Um, wow. That's does, crazy. Is that is that a good do we now are we now square on Chris Jericho? Did I do my duty? I think so. Do you listen to this show? Is he like what's his vibe to his show? Is he more Joe Rogan or he, or more feels, like it, scientist? It feels very Joe Rogan. Um, OK, he, he, just kind of talking about whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's um, yeah, he he very much. uh he he caters the the behavior of of the podcast to whatever the whoever the guest is. So, um, a lot of wrestling stars of the current day and old kind of swing by. He'll do episodes with them. But he does a lot of like conspiracy theory stuff. He talked about JFK a fair amount in a few episodes. Yeah, he's um, real into it. Yeah. Oh, wow. So yeah. so when I when when you guys are talking about conspiracy theory stuff, like he JFK, is, just did. Yeah, he's all for it. So I, I think you guys getting. Jericho on the show is not that difficult. I, feel I, like, I would I feel love like to talk would, to Chris Jericho. He would yeah. vibe with you guys quite well. Especially after this. My uh, dad so, wouldn't like it. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> yeah, he seems like an asshole. His dad lifts up the list and he's on the list. All right. Anyway. Uh, so the reason he came up in uh, Chiluminati sphere is that this dude always has had a connection to the paranormal. Very open to the weirdness of it, which, you know, I respect. And back in November, he went on Howie Mandel's podcast, Howie Mandel Does Stuff, uh, on Rooster Teeth, and just talked for, like, over an hour about all kinds of topics. And actually, it was a great fucking interview to kind of watch as somebody who doesn't really know all that much about the world of pro wrestling. Uh, Jericho's really eloquent, sort of intellectual, academic-type guy when he talks about this stuff. He lays things out really well, even some of the ways that wrestlers kind of get the short end of the stick in a lot of ways when it comes to making money. And it made sense to me when he compared his early days of doing gigs with random promoters and learning techniques uh, to sort of like doing improv comedy or jazz. And like he even mentioned Yes And. Um, and he calls it a live Shakespearean stunt show, which I think is pretty accurate. That's a fucking cool-ass way to describe it, actually. And outside of the woo-woo stuff, uh, uh, which we'll get into right now, I just recommend giving that interview a look anyway if you're interested in who Chris Jericho is. Don't don't tell your dad. And I'll toss the link in the show notes uh, for peeps who want to see, uh, though he's pretty pro-NFTs, so 
Be careful. Uh, by the way, uh, did you know his entire career, he only ever missed six weeks with a broken arm? That's, like, already paranormal. He's, like, the luckiest man in wrestling. I don't understand. He's deadass like the Keith Richards of wrestling. He was, like, right there with everybody, and he's just, like, couldn't be in better shape. Calling him the Keith Richards of wrestling would be an honor to him because he very much models himself after Keith Richards in his career. I feel like so. that's accurate. He's, <laughs> yeah. like, a huge rock. Like, he's, like, if Keith Richards was a Mortal Kombat character. Yeah. That's Chris Jericho. Yeah. Uh, so, according to this interview, uh, Jericho is an absolute true believer uh, and honestly, it's only the last 10 minutes of the interview or so where he talks about, like, paranormal stuff. Uh, but we're going to look at some of the stuff I found on the internet. We're going to do our best to decide whether this guy has touched the paranormal or not, okay? Okay. Uh, so first things first, I guess we could call it Exhibit A. Here's a quote from the Howie Mandel interview for Gerard to read. Uh, describing something that me and Jesse, uh, but more powerfully, Mathis and Fox Mulder, will recognize quite clearly. So this is for you to read, Jordan. I've had time displacement. It's when you can't account for a certain stretch of time. It's like when people get, like, abducted. I was driving home on a country road, and it should have taken me about an hour to get home. Instead of getting home at 2 a.m., I got home at 5 a.m. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing drugs or anything. There's just a big chunk of time missing. I should probably go to a hypnotist and see what happened, if there was any abduction or anything. I've had that time displacement. That's the craziest one. So already, yeah, straight up, this is him having this experience. Yeah, it's it's interesting because he's right. Obviously, like when it comes to abduction scenarios, a lot of them are are time time missed, missing time pieces. Sometimes it's minutes, sometimes it's hours. But also, this man has been hit in the head a lot. Yeah, that's true. So like, that's what I keep in mind. But like, but I wouldn't even I wouldn't even go that far. Like, I vividly remember one time driving to my parents' house. And there's this one part when they at the time lived in Kentucky and there was this huge hill. And I remember being at the top of one part of the hill. And this is on a highway, a lot of traffic. I was on the top of one part of the hill. And the next thing I was on the other side of that hill, like down the valley, up the other side. I don't know what happened in time there. It freaked me out because it like clearly it was weird. But like there was a bunch of traffic. It I clearly wasn't abducted. It's you just, just made I think, Mathis so jealous. There was like a moment of time where it was like, boop, and my brain was like, I'm going to shut it's, off for the next like 30 seconds. Don't worry about it, bro. That's like a known thing in driving. It's like tunnel vision or something where like, yeah, it's hypnotic in a weird way where you're like blinking like, oh, oh, fuck, it's been an hour. I can't even happened. count the amount of times that happened to me on my way to Cal State Fullerton. Right, like 5 a.m. to 5 a.m. is a huge yeah, gap uh, yeah. going back to the, to the topic, like from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. That's a th- that three hour gap is fucking huge. But, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm curious what, what else, where else this is going. He never really saw an alien. He just had the, the time displacement. Uh, so here's another one that's Chris Jericho versus the paranormal. <laughs> Exhibit B is a YouTube video from Paranormal New England called paranormal. Exploring the Bridgewater Triangle with Wrestling Icon Chris Jericho. It actually is sub 1,000 views at this moment. That's crazy. Uh, it was posted at the beginning of 2022. I also, think that, I think I have Bridgewater Triangle scheduled for October. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's, it's coming. He... he he, I, I think, I think he like was trying to shoot a pilot or something because it's like very expensive looking for a, for a video that has not even a thousand views. So I think he was using it to pitch something. Mm, okay. Uh, but basically, he goes around to tons of different witnesses in the area of the Bridgewater Triangle, which is kind of like the Bermuda Triangle, except it's in New England. Um, and uh, or like Skinwalker Ranch. Or it's, something yeah, like it's that, way closer say. to a Skinwalker Ranch type deal where like this is area, but it's a triangle, but all kinds of like 
ghosts, aliens, uh, cryptids, and it's like you, you name it, somebody's seen something. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like permaflap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so he goes around to everybody around there, different witnesses of paranormal activity from the farmers at City of Flesh Farms uh, to some dude in a Punisher shirt who saw the Lady of the Ledge. But just in case anybody doesn't know about it, like the Bridgewater Triangle, basically what we just said, it's just like an area. It's not really tied to one particular type of activity. It's just a hotspot. Uh, anyway, back to the rock where this Punisher dude saw the Lady of the Ledge. Uh, the investigators Jericho is with uh, decide that if they use a Van de Graaff generator to send one million volts down through the, qu- the quartz crystal that's in the cliff on the ledge where the Lady of the Ledge is, it's just like a, like a landmark where this lady supposedly shows up on this cliff. They think that this electricity is going to give the paranormal entities more energy with which to manifest and do stuff. That's a, that's, uh, for those who may not know, like that's in like the ghost hunting world. That's, that's a normal a, thing to do. That's yeah. a, but belief is like certain types of stones can maintain more energy. And that's why if there's like a heavy limestone or quartz or whatever, they might be more active. Is that the long lines of like crystal stuff? And that, I and think that vibe, so. It's I close. It, I kind of put it into that area. I think it's. It. I mean, a lot of the time when you see like bespoke ghost hunting gear, there's like crystals involved to like attune. You know, like how crystals are magic wands or whatever. I don't know. I can't get into it too far. Here's what I'll say: At 15 minutes in the video, things start to get a little crazy. I'll let you guys decide whether it's anything paranormal. Uh, here's a link for you guys to watch. Uh, it's already at the 15 minute mark, so you guys can live react. I'll put the full link in the show notes for everybody at home to to watch this too. Okay. Just go ahead and give it a click and uh, just kind of give everybody the play by play on what's happening here. There's like two orbs with electricity zapping between them rhythmically. Yep. Then they, then they, turn around to the forest behind them. There's another. Is it a noise in the woods that they're trying to? They're, they they lit the thing up and then like they're like something's happening. There's like tremors. That's like not normal. It's tremoring and then they like see something in the woods like and then like that's it. Yeah, they've got a a heat like a thermal camera pointed at the woods right now and a giant flashlight. Uh, okay. They don't want to lose it. They what is it that they see? It's like a, a splotch on the camera. That's hot. it. Looks like a, it looks like heat in the trees. Like there's a spike bloom of heat or light, and they're looking for it in the trees. And it, apparently, according to them, it's going along with the electrical current between the two metal balls they have set up. Yeah. So I don't know if that's paranormal. I don't know what you guys think about it, but it looks like. Chris Jericho went into the woods and hunted down a fucking ghost to me. I will say uh, the music is doing a lot of heavy list- lifting yeah, in this video. I, I absolutely agree with you, Jesse. Yeah. I, I mean, know that look, it's what are you that interesting. Yeah. No, it's, it's not. Of- it's very, very boring. Yeah. Zach Bagans ruined ghost hunting for everybody. So that's the second piece of evidence about Chris Jericho touching the paranormal. And finally, we're going to go back to the Howie interview. <clears throat> Aliens are just the beginning of what Jericho says he's encountered. We'll finish with one more incident, which I'll have Gerard read a quote from uh, Jericho about for us for now. Uh, From the set of his Travel Channel show, Chris Jericho, Hunting Monsters, where he goes off hunting for Louisiana's scariest monsters and legends. This man was a wrestler just so he could live my life. It's just weird because he's Canadian. Like, I don't know why he's like the guy that's going to the bayou, but I guess because he can maybe speak French. I don't know, but it's it, he's there. He's down in the bayou. Here it is. Here it is, Gerard. Here's the quote for you. Here's another one I did for a show, the travel show called Chris Jericho Hunting Monsters. 
We went to the Louisiana Bayou to look for a Rougarou, like a Louisiana werewolf or whatever. We <laughs> were there. You can't just or whatever that, dude. What do you mean? That'll be uh, that'll be uh, in an episode yeah. that Mathis does in like two years. When we were there, there was a voodoo priest who put a curse on a town in the 20s. When she put a curse on the town, this is, a, this is real, a hurricane came and killed 50 people. They have a mass grave in the middle of the swamp. We were out there and I had a machete. I was cutting through the swamp and we got to this mass burial ground. I put the machete in the ground. They have the ghost hunters there with the thing where they could scan you and lights can come up if they see something is attached to you. These guys were scanning me and it was going full on DEFCON green right on my arm. I was like, let me see that thing. Is there a button you're pushing? No, I do it to myself and it's blinking. Then I started feeling queasy, like I had been on a roller coaster. That's the endorphins, brother. This is fucking not good. I have to get out of here. This is really bad. I pulled the machete out on the out of the ground, and it went away. I'm wondering if maybe when I put that machete in the ground, it made somebody mad that it was buried there. I felt some weird <laughs> shit going on in my body. I talked to a shaman, and they were like, it happens. You get spirits attached to you, and you have to be cleansed. It's pretty out there stuff. But when you're there and it's three in the morning and you feel something weird going on and you know it's not normal, it's super hard. Or it's hard to explain. This man sounds like he panicked himself into a sickness. So what do we think? <laughs> yeah. True believer, Chris Jericho, telling the truth, paranormal kayfabe. What maybe, do we think? Maybe he's a magic machete that like pulls the souls uh, of the dead. Or maybe Chris Jericho in his 50s should not be staying up until three or four in the morning <laughs> driving and seeing weird things in the swamp. Nah, to hell with that. I'm with him. I want to be up at 3 a.m. in my 50s. You kidding me? I'm with Jericho on this. I'm almost there. Yeah, he. there already is like a like a study that just came out that belief in the paranormal is tied to sleep deprivation. So, oh, 100%. Yeah, 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 that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, uh-oh, me and Mathis. Uh, all right. So also remember the term paranormal kayfabe for later if you like themes in your writing, because I'm going to use it again. Ah. But now let's move on. Uh, the second mystery that we're going to be looking at today involves one of the greatest and hardest working technical wrestlers of all time uh, with a legacy that was marred by one of the single darkest acts in the history of professional wrestling, which happened in the last three days of his life. This is the story of another big famous wrestling Chris, Chris Benoit. I know a lot about this guy. Yeah, here's a quick description of the man and his accomplishments uh, for Gerard to read from Wikipedia. And then afterwards, he can add anything else that he needs to think we know before I get into Eddie Guerrero. Here we go. This is just his Wikipedia achievements. This is a sad one, everyone. Get, hold, hold on to your yeah. butt. Here we go. I got you, fam. Christopher Michael Benoit was a Canadian professional wrestler. He worked for various pro wrestling promotions during his 22-year career, including the most notable in the WWF slash WWE, WCW, and ECW, uh, and Stampede. He was a two-time world champion, having uh, reigned as a one-time WCW World Heavyweight Champion and a one-time World Heavyweight Champion in WWE. And he was booked to win a third world championship at a WWE event on the night of his death. Benoit was the 12th WWE Triple Crown Champion and the 7th WCW Triple Crown Champion. And the second of four men in history to achieve both the WWE and WCW Triple Crown Championships. He was also the 2004 Royal Rumble winner, joining Shawn Michaels and preceding Edge as one of three men to win a Royal Rumble as the number one entrant. 
Benoit headlined multiple pay-per-views for the WWE, including a victory in the World Heavyweight Championship main event match of WrestleMania 20 in March 2004. And for those of you wondering, just for everyone at home, he wrestled Shawn Michaels and Triple H, and he won the match. Uh, This story was covered in Vice's fantastic show, Dark Side of the Ring series. Which, if you want to get real sad and real dark, you watch that series. Very well produced from the eyes of wrestlers all over the industry. It's it's a rough one, but it's good. This one was the, like, two-hour season premiere special uh, for season two. Um, And actually, Chris Jericho was the narrator for that season, but he did not narrate this one because he's in it. Uh, And a lot of what I'm going to say here comes from me watching that show a couple times, as well as reading the somewhat controversial book, Chris and Nancy by Irvin Mushnick, who's a like popular sports writer whose subtitle is the true story of the Benoit murder, suicide and pro wrestling's cocktail of death. Uh, We're not going to go super deep into this. Uh, I just want to give you guys a basic background so you guys can understand everything that I need. Do you guys know the Benoit story? Uh, I mean, uh, we 100% should explain it to the audience, at least. Yeah, yeah. But before we get into that, uh, first of all, I have to talk about Eddie and Chavo Guerrero. Uh, Do you know who they are? Can you give people a background on them just quickly, Gerard? Yeah, so um, Eddie Guerrero and and Chavo Guerrero come from the Guerrero family. Um, Huge, huge lineage of wrestlers. Um, I believe Eddie's dad used to own a promotion back in the day that was held as like a very... Either his dad or his grandpa owned a very... Like an um, old school promotion. Old school, a luchador-based wrestling. Um, Latino, Hispanic. um, And uh, in the WCW era of wrestling, um, they were kind of seen as like the Hispanic... It was like Chava Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero, and Rey Mysterio Jr. They were kind of the the representation of, of Latin wrestling for many, many years. Um, and then um, they left, went to WWE, WWE bought WCW, um, and shortly after uh, the acquisition, and Eddie Eddie had some demons, went through some hard times, uh, alcohol and substance abuse, uh, but he found faith, he found God, he got cleaned for his family, and uh, eventually became one of the best wrestlers in the industry to the point he was like the star at the time that he died yeah he was like when, the he, main when, guy. He, yeah. when he passed away unfortunately he and chris benoit were the faces of the wwe and even idea they were best friends they grew up together they worked together they were in a staple called the radicals um with um dean malenko and uh perry saturn like they were they they at the time of 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 at, yeah, they were legends, and and like like uh, like like uh, what's the the two warriors that were like in love with each other, uh, Achilles and uh, whatever. Yeah, and, like that kind of vibe. And, and and to give you an idea, Eddie Guerrero was not only a fantastic wrestler, but his whole gimmick, which got him so famous, was he lied, he cheated, and he stole in every match. So what he would do is he would grab a chair, he'd throw at his opponent, his opponent would catch it, he'd then fall on the ground and act as if he was attacked by a chair, and the ref would call a disqualification on 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 the person with the chair. And that like career, that, that moment in his wrestling prowess is what exploded and he became this this huge wrestling legend because of it he became like mickey mouse or some shit yeah um yeah but anyway uh here they are on their probably worst day of their lives november 13th 2005 in minneapolis minnesota at the marriott city center when chavo who was 35 at the time finds his 38 year old uncle eddie dead of a heart attack in his hotel bathroom and then immediately called Chris Benoit, who was only five months older than Eddie and Eddie's best friend, like Gerard said. Uh, before the ambulance got there, they flushed his anabolic steroids down the toilet. And WWE said he died of damage from past drug and alcohol abuse before WWE was able to set him on the right track. 
Um, here's a quote from Chris Benoit uh, from the episode of Raw, where they did a tribute uh, interview for Eddie uh, for Gerard to read right now. This is in Chris Benoit's voice. You don't have to do an impression. Oh just that's <laughs> this, is, this is a rough one because uh, to give you context, he's crying his eyes out. And Chris Benoit yes. does famously not does not show emotion. He's like a dead eyed man. Yeah. yeah, this is what he said. Eddie Guerrero is my best friend, and I'm sure there's a lot of people he knew that would be able to say the same thing about him. He was such a beautiful person, such a kind-hearted person. I couldn't find the words. Words couldn't describe what kind of human being Eddie truly was. I've known Eddie for just about 15 years and spent a good portion of the 15 years with him on the road. We laughed together, cried together, fought each other, been up and down each and every mountain, each and every highway. Eddie always led by example. He was the one friend I could go to and pour my heart out to if I was going through something. If I had a personal issue, a personal problem, he was the one guy I could call and talk to and know that he would understand and he would talk me out of it because of all the experiences he'd been through. I believe in leading by example and always and Eddie always led by example through his life. Because of all the obstacles he went through and conquered and became a better person, he often used that as an example. We never left each other without telling each other that we loved each other. And I truly can say that I loved Eddie Guerrero. He's a man that I can say I love. And I love his family. And my heart and my thoughts and prayers go out to them. And Eddie, I know that you're in a better place. I know that you're looking down at me right now. I only know that I love you and I miss you, Eddie. Eddie, you made such a great impression on my life. And I want to thank you for everything you've ever given me. And I want to thank you from my heart and tell you that I love you and I will never forget you and that we'll see each other again someday. I love you, Eddie. Yeah. So as you can see, this is a guy who barely ever speaks. Uh, and he's, he had this much to say about Eddie. And as you can probably see, Eddie's death absolutely gutted Benoit, just totally broke his spirit and shit and sent him to like a pretty dark, lonely place. And that's not even where it ended because. In January of 2006, Chris's mentor while he was in Japan, a Mexican wrestler named Black Cat, a.k.a. Victor Barmanuel, died of a heart attack at 51. And then just three weeks later, Michael Johnny Grunge Durham, who's one of uh, Benoit's OG like Atlanta friends when he was with WCW uh, like, and hanging out over there, because he's like fish out of water Canadian down in Atlanta. So these were his people. Johnny Grunge died. Uh, he was morbidly obese at the time of his death, died uh, of complications from sleep apnea after taking a bunch of muscle relaxers pres uh, prescribed by the same doctor that treated Benoit, a man called Phil Aston, who got in a fair amount of trouble. Um, after losing Eddie and being put over the edge, Johnny Grunge was kind of like the final straw that broke the camel's back for Chris, kind of extinguished his passion for the work. Uh, Benoit had always been kind of a weird, process-obsessed, kind of antisocial, single-minded wrestler, really didn't care about anything besides wrestling, for the most part, in his day-to-day -day life, to the point that a lot of the guys who used to hang around with him off the clock called him the zombie. Uh, but now he was truly depressed and diminished. They moved him over to, uh, what is it, ECW, and he was kind of like not really front and center anymore because he was kind of, the spirit had gone out of his body a little bit, and he fully swore off any benefit shows, which they used to do for wrestlers when they died, um, or funerals, um, and even just eventually swore off religion in general because he was worried that they would take him to too dark of a place. So in mid-2006, even after a fairly extensive leave, he was basically acting like a hermit. And one night, just after moving to their new home in Fayette County, Georgia, Chris's wife, Nancy, uh, was picked up walking on the side of the road uh, by her new neighbor, Holly Schrepfer, saying that uh, she had just been thrown against the wall by Chris Benoit and that she was afraid to go back home. So Nancy, uh, originally Nancy Toffoloni, 
uh, was herself also a fairly popular wrestling star. Uh, she had an almost 13-year career. She was most popularly known as woman on WCW. I think she was a valet to Kevin Sullivan for most of that time. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's actually crazy because Kevin Sullivan was married to Nancy. Dude, yeah. And in the story, it was Kevin's idea yeah. to make it so that Chris Benoit had to fight Kevin Sullivan to for, win for- over Nancy. And then it actually happened in which they got together and Nancy left Kevin for Chris Benoit and they've been together ever since. Yeah, Damn. that literally happened. Wild. Like he wrote his own divorce into like kayfabe. It was like, yeah, so crazy. and they still worked together through the actual divorce, which was very bizarre. Like in real life, I actually like one of the things that I did not mention in this story is that a lot of people implicate Kevin Sullivan in this death somehow. And I just it's not true. I don't think of all the stuff that I read, like Everything that I read backstage, Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit were like friendly the whole time. Correct. The whole of the whole affair was very like fine and like not reflective of anything other than that by putting Chris Benoit and Nancy together, he got them to meet each other. You know what I mean? Um, uh, and it, and they divorced in '97 and they got married in 2000. So it's not like some quick thing like that. It was like you know a natural relationship. Uh, however, and and they were a very seriously dedicated couple to each other nancy and chris um but they did have a tumultuous marriage uh having once even filed for divorce quickly in 20 uh 2003 before like reversing it very quickly uh the pair were notorious among their wrestling friends down at the ginza (laughs) japanese steakhouse uh where they lived uh for launching into like loud embarrassing fights in public whenever they'd go out in big groups not because they hated each other but more because they were both kind of like drinking and using um substances and just kind of like didn't really have like normal personalities that weren't like very loud and bombastic they're both wrestlers it's kind of wild to think about um but here's a quote from the chris and nancy book about what their relationship uh where that relationship kind of ended up and the vibe between chris and nancy heading into 2007 uh this is going to be for gerard to read again here The evidence of the last months of Chris and Nancy's lives, including an incomplete record of the text messages from their cell phones, brings into high relief the bitterness of their alienation, spotlighting both specific issues and the general inability of this particular man in a profession celebrating misogyny to embrace domesticity. Yeah. And just to give our listeners a taste of what they fought about, Gerard's going to read you a text that Nancy sent to Chris while he was on a road trip to Canada. And as he does, please pay attention to everything that Nancy's saying and what she thinks might be going on here. So this is Nancy saying this. Yeah. Texting. You are a grown man with three kids. Set the example. Are you trying to say this is how you grew up watching your dad call your mom names and make her cry? No. Then what gives you the right? Grow up for the mighty sakes. For mighty sakes. Get off the stuff. It's obvious. I'm probably not the only one who can see. And we both know the WWE wellness program is a joke. Damn. So do you guys know what the WWE wellness program is? I were to guess it's meant to help wrestlers get off whatever substance they might be abusing. But in reality, it's probably a PR firm. Yeah, it was launched in 2006 directly after the Eddie Guerrero stuff, because Eddie Guerrero's whole thing was that he used to do it and now he didn't. And, and whatever he was doing with the wellness program it was still supplying him with some of the things that he needed to get through his life, which happened to be drugs some of the time. So uh, this is a quote from the Bleacher Reports 
Pavitar Sidhu for you to read, uh, Gerard, from a 2011 article called WWE, The Truth Behind the Wellness Policy. The WWE wellness program is almost a joke as the real main event players never actually get suspended. But this is an Mm. excellent way to keep the media from constantly pointing at the WWE to blame them for the death of pro wrestlers as a result of steroids and drug abuse. The wellness policy helps protect the company and potentially their main event performers. Yeah. Now, it is important to note, though, just to throw it out there, that the wellness program not only was designed for this, but it was heavily kind of um, created on the tail end of the McMahon trials with the, with, um, in the nineties about Hulk Hogan and on all the drugs, right? Like, yeah, they kind of, when they bought, that was like the vibe around wrestling outside of the fandom. It was like, Oh, those drug addicts. Yeah. yeah. When they bought, when, when they bought WCW, they kind of said, you know what? We survived the McMahon trials. Like, let's not talk about this ever again. And then as Alex talked about it, when it, when when Guerrero passed away, they kind of went back to the drawing board and said, no, we should have an outward facing program. And they would honestly use this wellness program as as much as it's designed to, um, you know, make wrestlers be accountable for their responsibilities. And we've learned now, obviously, through time and time again, the wellness policy kind of became a joke. There was a time and there still is a time in that the wellness policy Depending on on the wrestler and how famous they were getting and how popular, yeah, high, how high up or down the card you are, how yeah. high up or down the card that they would enforce the wellness program to punish them. So you know, Rob Van Dam, RVD, one of the most um, famous wrestlers um, of the hardcore era in ECW, he was the world champion for both uh, w, WWE and ECW at the time. He beat John Cena. And it became a huge ordeal, and shortly afterwards, he was suspended because he got pulled over for having weed on him. Which is crazy, yeah. And they didn't even try to save him. They just pulled the rug underneath him and said, you're, you're out. Done. And mind yeah. you, the Ben Wall situation had already happened, I believe, at this point, but that kind of gives you the scale of, like, it. the wellness program at the time was definitely a sliding bar that they would like to use in order to control narratively who it, was yeah, popular it gave them a way to control who was in trouble yeah more, more than anything yeah uh but uh benoit had abused steroids so thoroughly in his life that his body had literally like impaired sexual function like his testicles didn't work right and he couldn't it, it, his body couldn't make its normal supply of testosterone anymore and it was through the wellness program that under the guise of quote testosterone replacement therapy he was able to continue using steroids while also outwardly appearing to happily follow the new rules and look like he cleaned up his act which is like another benefit to these famous wrestlers who are trying to escape this sort of association so anyway nancy also driven by this domestic instability towards prescription drug abuse drinking uh even stealing chris's drugs sometimes uh, around the house but eventually for the sake of their son daniel who was very young She started exercising, getting straight, even though Chris was often nowhere to be found, extremely controlling when he was around, all while simultaneously remaining completely, quote, emotionally detached throughout. Uh, And in May 2007, Benoit told Bob Hardcore Holly Howard that Nancy was, quote, fucked up on pills and booze, and he checked himself into a hotel for the night after they had another fight. And that was in May of 2007. Uh, A month later, in June, rumor was that Chris Benoit was having an affair with the WWE diva Michelle McCool, uh, something that might actually be supported by police evidence and text records. Um, But I, you know, whatever. And Nancy was not immune to this suspicion either. She was very clear on boned up on what was going on. Um, And the fighting was worse than it had ever been. 
Chris's mood swings were getting extremely scary and aggressive, and he was becoming much more physically abusive, and she was making a loose plan at the time to move out with Daniel in the near future. And famously, she's quoted as telling her friend Pam Clark, If anything happens to me, make sure people know Chris did it. Um, And on Monday, June 25th, 2007, uh, that same new neighbor who ran into Nancy on the road, Holly Schrepfer, found the bodies of Daniel and Nancy in the house when she was with the, the police helping them do a wellness check on the house. Both had been strangled to death. After making their way down to the basement, they found that Chris Benoit had also taken his life, meticulously hanging himself with his own gym equipment. Um, according to the WWE, Chris had been unaccounted for since Saturday when he missed the first of two wrestling shows he'd end up missing that weekend. No call, no show, just conflicting, confusing cryptic, cryptic texts with some of his friends like Chavo, Guerrero, uh, various mentions over the phone of a possible cover story he'd come up with to delay the discovery of his crimes about Nancy and Daniel both getting very violent food poisoning. Um, and on Monday, uh, after still not officially being able to get a hold of him, uh, early in the morning, the WWE called the police, asked for the welfare check, which is when Holly, the neighbor, got involved and the bodies were found. Uh, I'm not going to go deeper into the details of exactly how they were killed, uh, but I will say that he did put a Bible by each of their bodies for some reason, and in his own Bible, which was found later, uh, he left a short suicide note in there, which read, quote, I'm preparing to leave this earth. Sorry, I just want to chime in real quick. To add to that, Benoit was not a religious man until Eddie passed. So when Eddie right. passed, he became obsessed with religion because Eddie was always trying to tell him to read Bible verses and would recommend the book to him. And it wasn't until Eddie passed where where Benoit started to actually believe that like Eddie Guerrero was leaving him notes and 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 give him kind of insight via the Bible. Um and so, so there's that. And then also, um, not that it really matters too much, but it, it does kind of show you the monstrosity of, of, of their relationship. Um, Chris, Chris and Nancy's son, Daniel, had a lot of, of physical and mental issues. Um, and so the, he really had no way of defending himself from his dad when, when the time well, kind of came. he's fucking seven, too. Yeah. Like, like, he's a seven-year-old boy. Yeah. And there's actually some rumors about him being much more ill than than he actually was i don't know exactly what that's about i think it had to do with the da just like blabbing but the media ran with some stuff about this that was much more like they were like he has some syndrome and it's like destroying their marriage and it's just like wasn't true yeah they they basically think that he had a severe amount of autism um they thought he had something called fragile x which is like a a, a weird form of autism and and which he did not have he didn't have have, but they they that's what they used as a as a social media they were trying to blame it on the kid they were trying to blame it on the kid that their marriage fell apart yeah they were they were trying to frame that like he did it because he couldn't stand his kid anymore but it's not true Um, so strangely that night's three hour live raw show that, uh, Benoit was supposed to be at or something. It was always meant to be a memorial, uh, a memorial, uh, as Gerard mentioned, uh, originally though, it was for the character, Mr. McMahon, who had literally the, the week before blown up on television live in a car yeah. bomb. Yeah. So convincing that Donald Jesus Trump Christ. thought it was real, called in and was like, did something happen to Vince? Is he okay? I'm worried about him. I hope my friend Vince is okay. Um, but instead, uh, they canceled the live show. They broadcast an extremely quickly produced Chris Benoit Memorial Tribute show that was still three hours. 
literally opened with the surreal image of now alive again Vince McMahon. No explanation, just now he's a alive week again. after he killed, he died on TV. Like the last thing that people explosion. saw was a clip of him exploding. Yeah, yeah it was supposed <laughs> to be the end of the, of the McMahon character, Sandstone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, and it came on, no music, he was crying, and this is what he said, this is for Gerard Cherie right here. Good evening. Tonight, this arena here in Corpus Christi, Texas, was to have been filled to capacity with enthusiastic WWE fans. Tonight's storyline was to have been the alleged demise of my character, Mr. McMahon. However, <laughs> in reality, WWE superstar Chris Benoit, his wife Nancy, and their son Daniel are dead. Their bodies were discovered this afternoon in their suburban, their new suburban Atlanta home. The authorities are undergoing an investigation. We, we here in the WWE can only offer our condolences to the extended family of Chris Benoit, and the only other thing we can do at this moment is tonight pay tribute to Chris Benoit. We will offer you some of the most memorable moments in Chris's professional life, and you will hear tonight comments from his peers and those here, his fellow performers, those here who loved Chris and admired him so much. So tonight will be a three-hour tribute to one of the greatest WWE superstars of all time. Tonight we will be, will be a tribute to Chris Benoit. So this was a three-hour special. Before the special had even hit its third hour, the actual news had already caught up to the story and started reporting that they had all died on different days throughout the weekend and that the case was already closed down because Benoit was already known to be the killer. And so this was happening on other channels while Raw was on TV. So, so when they announced that the three of them died, no one knew that Benoit had done it at the time. So that's why they did the tribute. They thought, oh, all three must have died at the same time as a yeah, family. According, yeah. they thought according it was, to what they said. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what they thought. And then the news came out shortly afterwards during the broadcast that was pre-taped and automated at that point that, he, that Chris, Benoit, Chris Benoit was, in fact, the responsible reason for all this. Yeah, and so a few days later on the June 29th SmackDown, Vince was singing a slightly different tune. Uh, here's, a, here's another Gerard reading of his second statement about this after he was apparently unhappy with whatever he said on ECW. He also said something on ECW, but this was like the third thing that he said about it. So that's for you. On a recent edition of Raw, the WWE presented a special tribute show recognizing the career of Chris Benoit. However, the facts of this horrific tragedy involving Chris Benoit were not known at the time. Therefore, other than my comments, there will be no mention of Mr. Benoit's name in this program. On the contrary, this show is dedicated to everyone who's been affected by this terrible incident. This marks the first step of the healing process whereby WWE performers will now do what they do better than anyone else in the world, entertain you. So, there was... Maybe some strangeness there, especially considering how fast they were able to put a three-hour pre-taped broadcast together on the same day that they found out that he was dead, which is kind of crazy. Uh, or maybe there wasn't any strangeness. Um, you know, maybe it was just a bunch of wires getting crossed. Uh, but that probably wouldn't matter unless there was some way that they could have known that Benoit was dead before the police did. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that just yet, because overnight... This became a huge media conversation about the practices of the WWE, what kind of superstars they're creating through this crazy-ass, brutal lifestyle they've made for these dudes, and among allegations of shoddy police work and misleading rumors fueled by the loose-tongued DAs, like that Fragile X syndrome thing that we were just talking about, which Chris Jericho even, he had to like eat humble pie about it, because he was like, honestly, I got this crazy news about Chris Benoit that he like murdered his family, and they gave me this explanation that it was maybe Fragile X, and so I was just grasping at straws trying to come up with something, but now I know that was wrong. You know what I mean? Like, 
So Crazy. that was like a big, like even other wrestlers who were close with Benoit were thinking this type of shit. Um, uh, the bad press about the drug use was about to be joined by a whole new type of bad press around something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh, or t- CTE. And here's a quote uh, from Chris Jericho uh, for Gerard to read from Pace magazine about how things used to be back in the day and how CTEs might have easily happened all the time right under everybody's noses. Here you go. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And the thing is, no one's doing that unknown. It was a badge of honor. You just grit your teeth and take a chair shot. I remember, like, hit me as hard as you can. You just would fucking sit there and take it. Watching it back now is like watching hockey goalies playing with no masks. Like, what were we? What were you doing? And you'd be sitting there going, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. It was just the way that it was. Thankfully, a lot of us didn't end up in the same position that a guy like Chris did because we were all taking just as many chair shots. Just as many, if not more. I look back on it as almost embarrassing to see. It's hard to watch, but thankfully, we never, ever have to worry about that uh, sort of violence again. It's important to note yeah, I just, that yeah. Chris Benoit's signature move I literally was have this the in my flying nose right now. headbutt. Yeah. He would get on the top turnbuckle, and he would do a, t- a flying T-pose out, and he would land his head God. on top of the wrestler's shoulder. When he like was bone, the one wrestler bone on bone bone yeah. on bone he was a wrestler who famously did not do a lot of high flying stunts except for that and we would often would do with chris jericho specifically there are dozens of matches that those two would do where they would beat the crap out of each other so many moments where chris benoit would run full speed ahead at jericho to the outside of the ring and jericho would clock him with the chair as hard as he could there are tons and tons and tons of matches recorded on the WWE Network on, on Peacock. You can watch yeah. right now, wherever Benoit wrestled, where it was very evident that this man would Just get smacked annihilated. Yeah. in the head more often than almost any wrestler who would doing it, was doing it. Yeah. And basically, all this crazy head trauma some re- wrestlers inevitably get leaves permanent damage to the brain, similar to the damage that you see from Alzheimer's or dementia, which causes all kinds of thinking and mood problems, causes aggression, causes depression, causes suicidal tendencies. Uh, and after his father, uh, what's his name, Michael Benoit, submitted his brain to be analyzed for CTE's postmortem, it was actually revealed that Chris Benoit's brain, quote, had a brain that resembled an 85-year-old with Alzheimer's, which would lead one to ponder how Mr. Benoit would have found his way to an airport, let alone been able to remember all the moves and information that is required to perform in the, in the ring. That's an 85-year-old Alzheimer patient's man's brain in his, in his head. But what's the implication time. of that sentence? That someone is guiding him? They're just saying it's, his brain, they're saying his brain was so fucked up that it's a miracle that he could even get around. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I was like, it sounds far more sinister what you just said. It, no, it just means like he was so fucked up that even the doctor is like, I don't know how this guy could find the airport. His head was so fucked up. Uh, but yeah, according to the official story, this is all just really sad and terrible and tragically avoidable knowing what we know now. There's not a ton of controversy to it unless you want to really deep dive in. Um, and for the most part, the evidence that's out there does support the official police version of the story. So rather than offer you some kind of complete timeline of alternate theory, I'm going to just give you some highlights of some strange details that I've noticed about the case and then see if somebody with actual wrestling knowledge, maybe you or Jesse, can put anything together out of it. I don't know. First one, uh, in some of the crime scene photos of the house, 
there's like a huge knife that you can see. It's really weird. There's like a huge like butcher knife that's in uh, the house under Daniel Benoit's bed. Uh, Daniel Benoit was seven years old. Uh, I can't really imagine why somebody would leave that there by accident. But if you just search Daniel Benoit knife under bed, you'll find this picture. Um, it's in Dark Side of the Ring. I can't imagine why somebody would leave that there by accident. Uh, best I could imagine was somebody uh, saying online maybe Benoit planted it there to mislead people about what happened, or maybe he originally planned on stabbing everybody to death, but like choked because it was like a fucking crazy thing to do to stab your family to death. Uh, and just so gory, and I don't think he was thinking about that maybe to the last minute, and then he just put it away. What, what if it was the kid? He's seven, so maybe not. Just his dad was violent, and he was scared, so he had a fucking... There was calls that went out of that house at weird times, and some people think maybe that the kid called the cops while his mom was being murdered. So there's there's a lot of things that He did that say it was happen- at different times during the weekend, too, which it is It literally like was dark. on different days. It literally yeah, was. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, luckily, if it, if you can call it luckily, Daniel was sedated at the time that he was killed. So at least he had that going for him. But it's pretty awful, no matter what you say. Some people use this knife thing, though, as a rabbit hole to a fringe theory that Benwell was actually framed for the murders. But like I said, done a lot of digging on the case by now. I really don't think there's that much fishy about the murders themselves. I'm pretty sure we know pretty much what happened, which is that a man with brain damage had a very bad depressive episode. And in a fit of rage or in a fit of like true bottom of the barrel self-hatred just did some horrible stuff. But the next thing that I've got is a little bit weirder and is now we're moving into the world around this case, which I think is much more interesting and more mysterious. Um, but I had to get into the details of the case so that you could see why maybe the WWE would be interested in controlling information about this case, considering the wellness program and considering the bad press that they stood to have about something like this. So. Basically, that same neighbor, Holly Schrepfer, uh, said that she saw British WWE squire trainer Dave Taylor and his wife, Lisa, possibly with one other unidentified woman uh, there that day near the house in the neighborhood when she discovered the bodies. Um, they lived one town over, uh, so they weren't super. It doesn't make sense for them to just be in the area. Uh, and they couldn't have possibly known it was a crime scene at the time, according to the official timeline. So it's even weirder that they were there. And even weirder than that, she said that when she saw them, they were carrying some kind of weird deli tray like you might have for like a small social function, well, which kind of implies, as the book Chris and Nancy says, that, quote, the Taylors believed one or more, but not all of the Benoits had died and nonviolently at that or alternatively, it would suggest that they wished to convey as much. Uh, so really weird. So they basically went over there with a plate of appetizers to essentially try and get in the house to see like what was going on. Something like that. Yeah. Like nobody knows. It's just off the testimony of this neighbor who's yeah. like was with the cops literally all day and is not untrustworthy. Uh, but here's a quote about it from Mike Benoit's lawyer. That's that's Chris's father. Uh, this lawyer is called Patricia War- Roy. And this is for Gerard to, to read. It's a quote. Holly Shrepfer. Shrep, Shrepfer, yeah. Holly Shrepfer yeah. told me early on that WWE had Dave and Lisa Taylor appear at, at the Green Meadow house and try to get information from Holly. Holly ran into Dave and Lisa immediately after discovering the bodies, and it appeared to her that Dave and Lisa Taylor knew about what happened, though Holly thought it would be impossible because Holly was the first one to discover what happened. After speaking to Holly outside Green Meadow, Dave and Lisa Taylor would not call Holly directly and would have a mutual friend who taught horseback riding call her. 
Holly thought it was weird that the couple called her via the mutual friend, and they thought it was weird that a week later they called and kept emphasizing to her and that, that they did not know what happened prior to being told by Holly and just didn't want to appear to her that that was the case. So this is them calling Holly up later through a, through a middleman going, by the way, just so you know, we had no idea what had happened there. We just happened to be there. Sorry. Just so you know. I know you didn't ask us, but just so you know, we had no idea. Um, which is like, and this is a lawyer saying that this testimony happened, right? Sure. But strangely, though, today, the vibe around the question, was Dave Taylor there with his wife that day and did they have deli meats, is one mostly of denial. Dave Taylor, for example, says he was in Texas with the WWE tour crew that day, uh, though according to the book, he does give a very hazy account of where exactly in Texas he was, uh, and he committed himself to a story that the author of the book was told by an insider sounded like nonsense. Uh, so... That could be made up. I don't know. I'm not saying one way or the other whether it is or not. Uh, and to be fair, William Regal, who's another British wrestler from that era, on the other side of the coin, recently went to bat on David Taylor's side of the story last July on his podcast, Gentleman Villain, which, which William Regal, I guess, has just had this whole time, where he had this to say, if Gerard doesn't mind giving us a little taste of William Regal here. Uh, I got a little quote from William Regal about this. Here you go. That's a lot of another complete piece of nonsense that needs to put, that needs put into bed. Dave Taylor had nothing to do with that. Dave was with us. Me and Dave were. We had seen each other that day. We were both shaking our heads like in the days because he knew Chris as well for a long time. And it was that kind of day. And I know there's a lot of people that will say that there's this and there's that. I'm telling you from my perspective, most people will wa- will walking most people will walking around on that Monday like zombies, just staring. I remember seeing quite a few people just walking around like not knowing and me being one of them. I wanted to just I just wanted to get that out of the way because that seems to have come up this week and no, I had no clue about any of that. Again, because of the time period, I had no clue and that was why. It was just, he was banned from being around. So there you go. Uh, But if it sounded to you like he was oddly hyper-focused, much like Dave and Lisa Taylor, on whether he could have had any early knowledge of the murder, uh, that is because his spot at the Chris Benoit tribute is like famous among wrestling fans for how much it seems like he does know what happened when he says it. So I have a link. This is a minute long clip. I have a link for you guys to watch this. And Mathis or Dean, if you guys want to give this, if you want to give the audience this one, I think you can probably tell in the voice the thing that people react to here. So I'm going to give you guys a chance to listen to this clip. And then you tell me if you think that this is a man who knows that this guy murdered his family. At a later date, I'll be quite happy to sit here and tell you all the things about Chris Benoit that I'd like to tell you. Um, But... Now all I'm willing to say is that Chris Benoit was undoubtedly the hardest working man in professional wrestling. The most dedicated and totally absorbed in the business of professional wrestling about anybody I've ever met. And that's... All I've really got to say at the moment, he was the absolute best. Thanks. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's tough for me to think that. I don't know. He, he just seems like a guy who's in shock. So right. I, I, I was reading through the comment section on this, and um, and obviously comment sections are comment sections. But someone did point something out that um, uh, about a year ago after this video was posted, um, the username on YouTube, Troy the Burge, pointed this out. He said, yeah. um, Regal did an interview that gives some insight here. According to Regal, he was ready to do a heartfelt tribute, but as he was walking to do this... Uh, JBL, John Bradshaw Layfield, was just walking out. And according to Regal, as they were chatting for a moment, JBL said something like, you think he has anything to do with it? Regal said that that was the first moment he started to entertain what had actually happened. And then 30 seconds later, he filmed this as all kinds of shit was suddenly spinning in his head. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, that'll throw you the fuck off, for sure. Sure. That seems genuine, because JBL... For those of you guys who don't know, he's from the APA, the Acolytes, but eventually would become one of the most uh, infamous heels in wrestling, fighting Eddie Guerrero and Benoit very often. He is a very bullish personality, a very scary guy, and was like, but when, when he was with the boys, he was very no-nonsense and straight to the point. And uh, it's very, very possible that in this moment that JBL and, and Regal were just like having a genuine real conversation yeah and it's it's really not about like this is evidence that shows that he knew for me it's more just about this really happened where this came out and people looked at it and then and he that's why that whole podcast interview existed in the first place that i was talking about right is that he felt like he needed to come out and be like listen i don't know what the fuck dave taylor was not there and i had no idea either and nobody had any idea because he's probably been hearing it you know for 15 years right it's it's like the Montreal screw job and that the more people talk about it and the more evidence that comes out about it, there is kind of a legend in itself that just keeps growing and growing. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Would it behoove him to back up Dave Taylor's story, even if it wasn't true? Sure. But I also don't think of William Regal as a liar like that. Yeah. So I don't want to come down on either side of this one. I just think it's a really interesting thing. And I honestly do think both stories kind of have a could simultaneously have some truth to them. Uh, so it's really impossible to say exactly to what degree, right? Um, so that's the first thing, or the second thing, actually. But then there's this Wikipedia hacker, which honestly, if I'm being real, is probably the entire reason Gerard is here with us doing this episode in the first place. Because years ago, before I was even on this show, and maybe this is why Mathis wanted me on the show. I have no idea. I did a, I did a show I called, don't even know what you're I did a show called <laughs> Mystery Search that was just like a little mm -hmm. pilot thing that was kind of funnily written. That was like about it's on YouTube. You can watch it now. And it's it's like Alex basically writes a a conspiracy theory through AI. And what's funny about it is that like Alex writes all of his isms into the AI. So the robot is like, <laughs> so check this shit out, dog. On this yeah. day at this time, this thing happened. Like, why did that happen? <laughs> yeah. But so it's also I, incredibly creepy. Like, let's not mistake. It's weird. Yeah, it's, it's, it's real scary. weird. It's very it's weird. It's real scary. It's called Mystery Search. You can go find it. Uh, I, I did it, like, almost 10 years ago now. I thought it was just kind of like a bullshit story. I thought it was just kind of like, like, my conclusion at the time was that the internet came to life and, like, put something out put something out there you know just because i was i like you like like you guys know i don't really care about the actual explanations of stuff i just think it's interesting uh but as i looked into this shit it's kind of it's kind of strange so so basically there was this dude matthew t greenberg uh and just for, he's 19 years old at the time and just for this one quote instead of having gerard read it, i'm gonna have jesse read it because i i like heard this quote written in jesse's voice 
as I was reading it the <laughs> okay. first time. So this is this is this is for Jesse. Oh boy. Greenberg, therefore, represented somewhat more than a brief, perhaps unintended, center of attention during the media frenzy. He was also someone whose consequences uh the who someone whose consequences the powers that be had to work overtime to suppress. For they wanted to make sure he didn't wind up getting elevated to the status of the Benoit story's answer to Brandon, the young fan in 1990 movie Galaxy Quest. In that parody of Star Trek, Brandon has encyclopedic knowledge of his cult, which comes in handy for the climactic solution finally figured out by Tim Allen's character, a washed up and cynical former actor on the TV show. This is how you think I the verse the verus the verimis the verisimilitude of Galaxy Quest. You suck, Alex. Has such a hold on the sweet hollow souls of its followers that it has inspired the architecture of an entire civilization in another quadrant of the universe. What All that's true. What the but fuck? It's, it's just a super specific reference to Galaxy Quest that I think this reporter made without realizing that this movie was in the center of everyone's life. Uh, but basically, late night, Sunday, June 24th, 2007. And remember, this is Sunday night. The bodies were discovered by the police on Monday. Uh, Sunday night by 10 p.m. Eastern, Chris Benoit's Wikipedia entry had already been edited, and Gerard's going to read out loud what it had been edited to the first time that it was edited. Here it is. Chris Benoit was replaced by Johnny Nitro for the ECW championship match at Vengeance as Benoit was not there due to personal issues. This makes sense that this was added because that night was the pay-per-view that Benoit was not there for. and no-showed. And they cited that he was not there for personal issues. Yes. And I believe, um, even though, I don't know if Johnny Nitro won that night, but I think CM Punk ended up winning that night. So then two hours later, though, at a minute past midnight, it was edited again, adding to the end of the sentence from the same IP address, this, this, this piece. Stemming from the death of his wife, Nancy. So then the, that part was added to the end. So it was like he wasn't there due to personal issues stemming from the death of his wife, Nancy. Then that edit was reversed less than an hour later by an admin who said, quote, Need a reliable source. Saying that his wife died is a pretty big statement. You need to back it up with something. And then, from another IP that wasn't the Greenberg kid, all the way out in Australia, an hour later, the thing was edited again, and it now reads like this, which Gerard is going to read for us. Chris Benoit was replaced by Johnny Nitro for the ECW Championship match at the pay-per-view Vengeance, as Benoit was not there due to personal issues, which according to several pro wrestling websites is attributed to the passing of Benoit's wife, Nancy. But this was reverted again by the admin who said, quote, saying several pro wrestling websites is still not reliable information, which it's not. So still, even though... Within hours, the the actual Chris Benoit Wikipedia page was returned to normal. The temporary edits were noticed in the logs of the page by Monday night. Uh, And the next day, after Greenberg's IP address was traced and revealed that he lived in Stamford, Connecticut, literally, quote, around the corner, which his dad says in a police interview, he brings it up himself. He's like, is my kid in trouble? I just want to make sure because we live like really close to WWE, like around the corner from it. Um, So the authorities were notified uh, about that. And within days, 
The story of this weird Wikipedia hacker with knowledge he shouldn't have had was on the news across the country, okay? So pretty soon when that happens, the dude who did it, Greenberg, posts an extremely wordy and over-explainy apology on Wikinews, uh, much nicer and less awful-sounding than the language he used in many other weird early 2000s dude-funny, misogynistic, racist joke edits that he made to Wikipedia throughout the day. He, like, changed the name of the mayor to his friends in a city somewhere. He, like, put all these, like, racist things and sexist things in, in certain Wikipedia entries. Um, taking care to make especially clear that there was no funny business going on. Uh, and here's a quote from that response, that apology that was, like, fucking long that he wrote. Here's, here's Gerard reading that for you right now. Oh, boy. Here we go, everyone. This is a long one. I am just still in shock that what I posted turned out to be true, and I feel awful that my post turned into a huge story when it was only speculation on my part. Sorry, I'm writing a lot. I just want to move on from this mistake, and I hope you understand. Thank you. I also want to clarify again, the comment wasn't meant to be a prank, but just speculation on my part from some rumors that I had heard on the internet about the family emergency that caused Chris to miss the pay-per-view vengeance. It was stupid of me to post, and I regret it, but I did it, and that won't change. But as long as everyone knows that it was simply a coincidence and nothing more, then we can move on from this. Also, I'd like to apologize for my other wiki updates on other pages, as they were immature and dumb. But I know I'm not the only one who has done this, but nonetheless, I will never post anything like that again, as I have learned from this. Thank you again. First reason I included this is because, in my opinion, as this is just about one-fifth of the total amount of repetitive and over-explainy shit that he used to explain himself, it feels pretty, like, lawyer-coached to me, like he had talking points that he really needed to say. Personally, that's just speculation on my part, but it just feels that way. Uh, but secondly, uh, I include it because he never really fully substantiated exactly where he got these rumors from. And though there is a videotape out there of him talking about it uh, to the police, uh, the guy who wrote the book had to fight tooth and nail to find this thing. Police said it exists. People, police said it didn't exist. Then they, he asked for it and they sent it to him and it was like three minutes of it and it got cut off. And he was like, what the fuck is this? And he had to go diving and finally he got the tape. Um, the only thing, I watched it and the only thing that I was able to glean from it uh, was that Greenberg read the info that Benoit's family was sick that night before anybody else knew, which only those Benoit had talked to personally had heard because he's the only source for that rumor. But somehow Greenberg already had that information um, and which hadn't been reported publicly until Monday evening, which is like almost 20 hours after the Wikipedia edits were made. So that's impossible, according to the official timeline. Also, at one point, he denies having any connection to the WWE before the cop asks him. He's like, by the way, I don't have anything to do with the WWE. Nothing at all. No connection. Um, which is like super weird. <laughs> so weird. Uh, but once you see him and what kind of guy he is, you can maybe chalk it up to him being nervous. Uh, you can watch the interview here if you want. I'll give you links to all three parts for the show notes. But just in case you want to clap eyes on him for a second, for you guys here, I'll just give you guys this. You can kind of just look at him and see. He's just like a very... 19-year-old, antisocial, gamer, teenager boy. He's like a PC boy. I, like, he's, he looks harmless to me. I don't know. Probably, well, it, it makes sense that he'd be nervous if suddenly the news was thrust upon him. He'd probably be panicking. 
Yeah, this dude yeah. doesn't look like he's part of any sort of grand high conspiracy thing. He just looks like every dude but on he, 4chan. But he might have known somebody at WWE who worked there who gave him... Really? Uh, this was the like, kid? I mean, he's just around the corner. He wrote it on Wikipedia. He wrote the N-word on Wikipedia the same night. He could just be a fucking little... A little guy. Yeah, he he, he, he looks like head. the kind of person yeah. who would do yeah. that. Uh, yeah. And, he, and he, to, to be fair, he was very scared. He's very nice to the police officer. Very cooperative. Very clear that he like bit off more than he could chew. I don't necessarily disbelieve his story that much, but he did have information that did not exist in the media anywhere before it existed. The thing about them being sick was like not a thing. That wasn't something that somebody had to say. That was something specific that Benoit said, right? Uh, and my point is simply this. The further you look into this, the more inconsistencies you find. It becomes harder and harder to tell whether the WWE knew because of the weird inconsistencies in the texting records. There's testimony from Chavo Guerrero, who probably could have taken what he got from Benoit that weekend, put two and two together earlier with the text he got. Also, Chris called him and was like, I love you. Uh, over the phone that Saturday, it indicates that maybe WWE could have, if not true knowledge that he was dead, because was maybe aware of it and was trying to get in front of it, or at least gone through some trouble on the public record to like obscure whether they had this knowledge. For some reason, they'd rather not share. Uh, but it's really complex, and it's long-winded, so unless you want to read Chris and Nancy for yourself, you're just going to have to trust me that I looked over it, and it at least checks out uh, that there is some weirdness here. That's the best I can say. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Chavo and anyone else who got weird texts could have just been covering for their friend who was no-showing for a match two days in a row, which is something that this man never fucking did. And these guys love each other, and they're going to cover each other's back without even knowing what's wrong. So it could be something like that. You never know. Um, But with the weirdness of the police investigation, the fact that Verizon was never subpoenaed for text because they said their system glitched out and erased them all, the fact that Benoit's diary that everybody talks about now where he'd write these like super sad letters to Eddie Guerrero about how he was feeling post-death, where he talks about drugs and he talks about all these other things, it wasn't found by the police during their investigation. It was found by that lady, Holly, again, the same lady who saw Dave Taylor, the same lady who helped the cops come into the house in the first place. It was found by her in the fucking trash. So I don't know what the fuck went on over there at that house that day, but I'd say the real thing people should be asking questions about isn't the murder itself, but rather who knew what when and what they did with the knowledge once they knew, because I don't think that we actually know the answer to that question right now, even after two hours of Dark Side of the Ring, and even after me reading about this fucking horrible murder for, like, more hours than I ever wanted to. Um, And before I wrap this story up and move on to our last one, uh, I just want to say, I've been reading about the private lives and personalities and lost lots of wrestlers now getting ready to do this, and for no particular reason at all, I'm just going to say... There are many wrestlers who are loyal to the WWE professionally because WWE is wrestling in a lot of ways today, thanks to capitalism and Vince going against his father's wishes and growing the company so large and powerful and buying every promotion that there is in the world. But as far as I can see, at least in some small way, the WWE is probably screwing every last one of their wrestlers in some way. (laughs) So don't get it. Don't get it twisted. Yes, I imply in this story that both the WWE and some of its wrestlers both may have had good reasons to misrepresent details of this case to the public and to the authorities, but I'd bet money on the fact that any wrestler who was doing it was just doing it to take care of their buddy Chris against a company that's always looking for any excuse to get these guys in trouble. Anyway, now I'm going to talk about my favorite wrestler ever, Rowdy Roddy Piper. 
And oh, my uh, God. oh yeah, wait though. Before before we move on, I have one never before discussed element of the Benoit story, at least never before discussed on air, uh, which I uncovered while doing research, locating a creepy uh, Reddit post that has one of Benoit's voicemails from that weekend on it after he committed his murders and pictures of the crime scene without bodies. Um, I have a link after to that. After he you... committed the murders? Uh, all right, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, uh, I have a link if you want it uh, to look at some of this stuff. Uh, but the real juice for me came from the comments uh, from somebody called Horn Pub and Grill, who said, quote, a very close relative of mine actually purchased this house and still owns it currently. I've been a handful of times. And then he implied that the house may currently be haunted. I have a quote here for Gerard to read about that. This is the first I've ever read about this. And just based on what he said, it seems very likely that he did go inside this house. So just go ahead and read this for me before we move on, because it's a little bit more fun than before. Sorry, I didn't have time to post last night, but I specifically remember them saying that they had one of their sons who had taken over Daniel's room upon moving in was supposed to be in bed sleeping, and they kept hearing what sounded like footsteps way past bedtime. They go upstairs to make sure Adam, not real name, was in bed, and and she expected maybe he was just being a boy and kept acting asleep as soon as she would get close to the door to listen, and the noise would stop as soon as she got there. They have dogs, and the dogs would randomly start growling, and the scruff on the back of their neck would rise, and they would be looking at a corner of the room until they had to basically be forced to stop. A few instances of kitchen drawers and cabinet drawers being open when my relative would be the only one home, and they specifically remembered said drawers never being opened by her. That's honestly all I can remember them discussing. My personal experience in the weight room it just seemed immensely colder in that room, even compared to the rest of the basement. Hair on the back of my neck and arms were at attention, but nothing other than that. Anyway, there you go. A new paranormal angle for you to make creepypastas about. Actually, don't do that. That's weird if you do that. But speaking of wrestlers and ghosts, oh, here the, here's the link if you guys want to check out the that Reddit post. Um, but I'm uh, good. I'm good. Yeah. I'm I'm. I'm... Uh, no bodies, yeah, no bodies in the photos, just the <laughs> pictures of the house. Uh, but speaking of wrestlers and ghosts, let's talk about Rowdy Roddy Piper, celebrity psychics, and the idea of kayfabe. Now, Gerard, Mathis and Jesse, if you know, uh, any of you guys, actually, can you give the audience an idea of exactly what kayfabe is and why it's called kayfabe? I don't know why is I don't know why it's called kayfabe, but the the art of kayfabe. It's like pig Latin fake. Right? Kayfabe is the art that you do not break it when you are a wrestler, whether you're on TV, on or off the screen. So, for instance, if you saw Stone Cold Steve Austin drinking uh, a beer on TV, and then you saw him at the airport, he would still be drinking a beer. Like he he would flick off, uh, you know people who'd ask for autographs and tell them, you know, DTA, don't trust anyone. You know, he'd, he'd say Austin 316 says, I just whipped your ass. The idea is that um, if you see a wrestler out in public, that they maintain that persona while they're not on television. And to and and the, the, the general rule is that you do not break kayfabe when you were not on TV, you are. They always want to give they always want to give the audience the uh, the decision themselves. If they want to decide if what they're watching is, is real. Like real so that they can get invested. Not that it's really real, but it's just they act in a way that it's like it's like Disney. Yeah. The idea is that if you see Mickey Mouse on the side of the street, he's still going, ho, ho, 
when you're like seeing him at at Seven Eleven. You're you're yeah, still like, exactly. wow, he's real. He is Mickey Mouse. That's kind of the vibe of yeah. what. And breaking kayfabe back in the '80s and early '90s was a was no no. People yeah, were done. very serious about it. If you broke kayfabe, you would get fired or bullied out of the company. Uh, any company they made they made it very crazy. It, crazy. it is the, the, they would protect it through and through. It was the one thing. That despite your beef with the wrestler, despite your problems, the general rule was that you never break kayfabe. Yeah, and I think that maybe there's a lot of other jobs out there that use kayfabe without realizing it. And today, coincidentally, we're going to be talking about Rowdy Roddy Piper, mostly in the context of his episode of the TV show, The Haunting of Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, season two, episode five of The Haunting Amazing. of. Is this, a, is, is this a WWE show? No, no, it is okay. not. It's like a it's like a ghost show. Okay. Uh, it's available online uh, for you guys to watch afterwards. I'll put in the show notes, but I'm basically going to spoil the whole thing right now. Uh, so do with this link what you will after I give it to you. The Haunting of is hosted by Kim Russo, who is a popular television psychic and medium who specializes in deeply emotional therapeutic encounters with the unknown, especially if celebrities are involved. Uh, and I don't really know the veracity of the things she claims, but if it means anything to you, Jesse, she's a Christian, and at least in her own words, which Gerard will read for us now, she claims to be like you. Here we go. A self-proclaimed skeptic, Kim always wants proof before she believes things to be true. Therefore, she willingly has become a certified medium by the Forever Family Foundation in 2005 and the Windbridge Institute for Applied Research in Human Potential in 2011, both of which subjected her to a battery of double-blind tests to prove the accuracy of her readings. Both organizations are dedicated and committed to proving the existence of life after death by integrating mediumship along with scientific studies. Being accredited is no easy feat, and Kim's scores proved to be exemplary. Now, sometimes I'll admit that I write things in this show so that later there will be a Reddit post of somebody discrediting it. And I'm hoping that the Forever Family Foundation and the Winbridge Institute for Applied Research and Human Potential gets put on full blast here. If they are real or not, I didn't look it up on purpose because we're talking about fucking. Oh, don't worry. I'm looking up the Forever Family Foundation. Nothing called the Forever Family Foundation plus I'm a Christian plus I'm a skeptic makes any sense. Right. Like, you can't have those three things. Like, look, I can say I was raised in a Christian family, but to say, like, go full skeptic and be like, look, I still got questions about, like, the authenticity of what was written in the Bible by a bunch of dudes a a thousand years after. You're like, you can't be on this. You can't be like, I also work for the Forever Family Foundation and these other people as a psychic. It's just not how it works. It's not. You can't do that. And and so. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about kayfabe right now, you know. But anyway, on the day of the episode, she's driving out to meet her client outside of Portland, Oregon. He's one of her son's favorite wrestlers, and she can tell he needs closure with her psychic ability. She's already getting a sense on her way to his house that he needs closure and that he's sad and that he needs a release. She starts sensing a presence even before she arrives. And here's Mathis with the quote, because Mathis is from New England, and she has a Long Island accent. Uh, there are a few people that are starting to chat in my ear. These are, uh, that's like, that's not this landlord. That's, what's his name? That's, that's pretty good. That's hey, Kim, what that's are you New doing England, That's New England. That's still New England. Yeah, Kim hey, Russo. I'm from New England. Kim Russo's coming to life before my eyes, man. Uh, these are a lot of different types of personalities I'm sensing. I feel like I'm getting a, a team together. Maybe it's the Mexicals. 
There's like a team. No, it's it not. Be. It could be the Mexicans. <laughs> it's some some type of suicide squad. Like I'm, uh, I'm seeing in a circle. Everyone's standing in a circle. A lot of them are men. I don't know. Almost like a men's club. Wow. I just can't believe that's what I'm seeing here. Yeah. So now a brief aside about Rowdy Roddy Piper in case you don't know who he is. Uh, do you know him pretty well, Jarn? I think everybody does. Uh, I, 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 I recently just watched the WWE he's a little bio. Older. Yeah, he's a little older. Yeah, he's a bit older. Um, he, he famously, in the early days of wrestling, was someone who was genuinely a jerk in the ring. Um, notoriously, he boxed Mr. T at WrestleMania 1. That was hilarious. the, big, that was the big kind of celebrity introduction. At the very first WrestleMania, he boxed uh, Mr. T. Yeah, he uh, just like everybody else that we've talked about today, he's another Canadian wrestler. Just pure coincidence. He's, he was born, I think, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. He won yep. 34 championships with WWF and WCW. He was famously the host of a thing called Piper's Pit, where like a mm-hmm. lot of the like drama could like play out. It was like a little talk show that he had with the other wrestlers. So yeah, so so TV has some ideas uh, or, or some context. A lot of the time in wrestling on television, they would have segments that would be themed around the wrestler. So and, you know, in the case of Chris Jericho, it was like um, this like movie themed based one, um, uh, like cutting edge with edge like there's a wrestler always had like ding dong hello with with bailey nowadays like the idea is that wrestlers would be given a a talk show theme where they would interview a wrestler uh in the middle of the wrestling show designed to get more context like and skit. build more yeah, drama. It's like a little skit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, uh, now let's get all the Venn diagrams on board about Rowdy okay. Roddy Piper. Uh, he's a star of They Live by John Carpenter, true. one of the best movies I've ever made. Seen it, but uh, true. He, he played Demaniac on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, if you remember that character from when they were trying to be pro wrestlers. Uh, he's done all kinds of amazing voice acting roles. He plays himself perfectly in Saints Row 4. Incredible performance. And Ric Flair called him, quote, the most gifted entertainer in the history of professional wrestling, which is a pretty crazy thing for Ric Flair to do to anyone other than himself. Does that do him justice? Yeah. Just to give anyone context for They Live and Rowdy Roddy Piper, um, the Obey thing that you see everywhere that you always yeah. see like in media and pop culture where it's obey and it's like the creepy eye that's from that movie yeah pretty much yeah so it's in the, the zeitgeist it exists yeah yeah the obey also is uh andre the giant for whatever reason yeah. for whatever reason the original obey graffiti from shepherd fairy is also wwf wrestler um yeah. but i feel like that does him justice right i feel like that's a pretty good rowdy roddy introduction yeah, yeah uh if and uh, in terms of like to show his cultural relevancy today um ronda rousey yes. uh, recently was in the wwe for the last uh five or six years and she, she's rowdy uh, ronda took up, yeah. she took up his moniker and wears um very similar outfits to to what he would wear in certain wrestling pay-per-views yeah. they do bagpipes and stuff when he came out something. yeah he's like not scottish thing. but he was definitely like he embraced the gimmick. From yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a gimmick. Yeah. yeah, that's why he's Piper, actually, weirdly. Yeah. But anyway, this story also begins, as too many do often, unfortunately, with the death of another wrestler, Roddy Piper's best pal, uh, a lesser-known wrestler called Adrian Adonis, on the 4th of July, 1988. 
Uh, Adonis wrestled uh, since the 70s with AWA, which is another old promotion, WWF, uh, most popularly as the embarrassingly outdated gimmick adorable adrian adonis which was like kind of like a gay character <laughs> pretty much so this for for those of you watching they just did an episode on dark side of the ring literally three weeks ago on adrian, adrian adonis like this was a very like one of the first homosexual on tv characters and was perceived as a villain because of the of, it was it was kind of what the conversation yeah. around, around homophobia at the time yeah. so it's very much like he he was good at being a fake gay bad guy. Yeah, he was very fa- very famous for it. Yeah, also like people forget that this was a time period of wrestling where it was like the 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 dudes actually hosting the events would be like boobies every five minutes. <laughs> they would do lingerie yeah. matches. There was a man literally named Val Venus who would do a strip show, and the women in the crowd would be like, "Yeah, it was." A wild experience. It definitely could not be done today. 100%. Um, yeah. Adonis feuded with Roddy. Uh, one time he came, they threw back to the show, and instead of Piper's Pit, it was the flower shop with with adorable Adrian Adonis. Uh, uh, and they were they were doing, they were, they were feuding and feuding until it culminated in what is called, it's a very traditional wrestling feud match called a hair, hair versus hair match during WrestleMania 3, where uh, it was actually Roddy Piper's retirement match. Uh, before he went into acting full time, and it's like one of those things where when you lose, you have to shave your head. Like it came from luchadors where you have to take your mask off, but sure. uh, it's it's about hair in 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 American wrestling for that for that reason. Um, here's what happened in Roddy's own words from his earlier episode of a show called Celebrity Ghost Stories, which he recorded in 2011, which Gerard will read for you now. Here we go. This is what happened that set this all off. Adrian Adonis was in Newfoundland, driving back from an event with three other wrestlers in the car. In the Newfoundland, there's this very high, rocky roads. And they don't know if it was a moose or something, you know, but he tried to avoid it, and boom. Uh, they uh, went over, and um, all of them died. Everybody died. And uh, similar to how it was with Chris Benoit, uh, he, his was especially rough for Roddy, because Adrian Adonis was basically the soulmate who saved Roddy Piper's life. Uh, after leaving home at 12, living out on the street, learning to box and wrestle to survive. Uh, and here's Gerard again with Roddy, Roddy's words, some nice words that he had to say about Adrian Adonis. You see, I didn't have a family. I was desperate to prefer a family. Holy cow. That void got filled with, professional, with the profession of wrestling. I was 22 years old. There was another young man, and he was 22 years old. The name that he wrestled under was Adrian Adonis. And there was chemistry with us. I really loved him, and it was a match made in heaven as far as the best friend. Now, I got to bring you up to 1984. I was a bad guy wrestler. My life was extremely hard. My daughter had just been born, and under the pressure of travel, I was getting in a tip with one guy and another guy, and I'm not getting along with anybody, and it's mostly my fault. And we're in this building in... Uh, Poughkeepsie. Po- What's that? Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie. And I'm yelling, and I'm throwing chairs, and Adrian comes up to me and says... I got to readjust... Adrian comes to me and says, Pipes, stop. Come here. I'll tell you what's wrong with you, Roddy. You know, you need to buy a house. You've never lived any place. You don't have nothing. You've never settled down. You've got a baby, and you're all over the place. Probably within two months, I had a house, and he was right. Everything kind of calmed down, you know. I didn't get in so much trouble. Pretty crazy that <clears throat> your life could be so whacked out that it never occurs to you to like settle down, get a yeah. home and live in it. Yeah. Uh, with, yeah. Even with a daughter on the way. 
Um, and eerily, just like Benoit and Eddie, uh, Roddy also said that after Adrian Adonis's funeral, where he gave the eulogy, he could not bear to do another one ever again. And he got really sad about it day to day. Uh, but unlike Chris Benoit, as all this was going down, the only thing that was happening mysterious in their lives was that his kids started seeing weird things happening around the house at night while he was out on the road. Uh, like his daughter Ariel would say a man would watch her in her room while she was laying there. And his son Cole would always see nope. these strange shadows darting around corners. And his youngest daughter Fallon would see a man in the den. And his wife would call him upset. And it kept getting worse. Until one day, it all came to a head, as Gerard will now explain in, in Roddy's own words. One night I'm coming over from the airport. I pulled in the driveway. And there's my son Cole. He's just trembling. He's so scared. And all he could say is, I saw a man in the house. Now, my son's telling me that someone is inside my house. I came there to take care of this matter. There's a huge fireplace. Two logs had come down, and the carpet in front of the fireplace was on fire. My house was burning down. I took care of that fire, and I look up, and it's like a reveal. It was Adrian Adonis. It's Adrian. Adrian looks at me, and he's not screaming or anything. He just says... Hey, Rod, take care of your house, damn it. And then there was nothing. And I just stood there for a long time. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave the fireplace. I stayed there for the longest time, and I had never seen them before that or since. Adrian Adonis was there, and that's a fact. Our house would have been burned down, and my brother was just taking care of me, as he had many, many times before. And you can say whatever you want to, but you know... Adrian was my brother, and he told me to get that house. That's wild. Yeah. That's a uh, wild story. So, yeah, so that that was like his celebrity ghost story episode from two years prior to that. Uh, so, prior to this show, uh, so back at the house with Kim, Kim Russo, psychic, celebrity psychic medium. Uh, Roddy was reluctant to buy into what Kim was saying about energy and spirits feeding into his guarded vibes. Uh, but he was pretty gung-ho about getting to the bottom of what he experienced that day, and he was really ready to look at his life through a sort of literary-style thematic lens for some reason. So, for example, Kim points out he has tons of gargoyles on his property, and Roddy says they're to protect his family from all his demons that he has. And so Kim says, that's interesting because gargoyles are meant to be in hell, but they're trying to get to heaven. And Roddy's like, I know how they feel. <laughs> all serious and shit when she says that. Uh, and when Kim, Kim talks to him about seeing Adrian, um, and that there's, like, that there's tons of spirits here that want to see him, share their messages with him, a, a, a boys club of people waiting to talk to him, he admits that he never really got over seeing Adrian, and he thinks about it like every day of his life. Uh, and here's a quote uh, about his demons uh, from the USA Today uh, in 2004 for Gerard to read really quick, and just what it felt like to be Rowdy Roddy Piper every day. I experienced what we in the profession call the silent scream. You're in your hotel room, the walls are breathing, panic sets in, and you start weeping. It's something all of us go through. Also known as a panic attack. Hey, but like a panic is. attack, like when you're on. Yeah, when you're out and. When you're on like fucking steroids and shit. Yeah, like it's like even extra, yeah. extra bad. Super, super. Yeah. Uh, so she starts to freak him out uh, by immediately sensing and asking about his childhood loneliness back on the Paz Reservation in Manitoba. Uh, telling him his grandfather George is there with his Mountie cop father who's approaching in shame for causing Roddy to run away in the first place with his drinking and bullying. She's like, they're here. They're trying to talk to you. They have messages for you. 
Um, and he's not really into it. He's kind of like pushing it away, but it creates this sort of like back and forth dialogue. It honestly kind of reminds me of watching wrestlers in the ring where she's like testing him. She's giving him his darkest memories in life and he's pushing her away and kind of maneuvering her where he wants her to go, trying to make sure she's not manipulating him, but they're kind of settling into rapport and kind of settling down and getting into the talking harder and harder. Uh, And then suddenly she makes a big move. She transitions from a crazy mind reading thing where she said his dad was just telling her about some bagpipes that he just cleaned in his den, which was true, and it freaked him out, and it allowed him to uh, smoothly segue into talking about the fireplace incident with Adrian Adonis without too much fuss, and on their way in, he grabs her a, quote, sody pop, and introduces Kim to his wife, uh, who tells her that she's seen things in the shadows, too. Um, And uh, once they're down in the den, uh, she goes even deeper into the talking, leading him very obviously into talking about she's like there's this guy here he comes from a very famous family with like 13 siblings i'm getting like a big o letter i'm getting an o like big big family and he's like i don't know what you're talking about she's like you know he like fell from a height i think i'm getting like a fell from a height o o e something like that o e o n and he's like owen hart 13 kids i know him i know him this is true <laughs> um and uh so she kind of like fed it to him but he decided to grab it you know what i'm saying kayfabe right and uh he uh if you don't know owen hart died he was like in a harness above the stage and it fell and he just like fucking died in a horrible accident um in front of a live audience in 1999 which is absolutely crazy and then she was like owen hart's here he wants to say thank you not just front of a live audience in front of the world on television like it wasn't a live show it was a pay-per-view Oh, God. She's like, Owen Hart's here. He wants to say thank you for how you helped him when he was alive. And Mr. Perfect's here. Kurt Henning's here. He wants to say thank you for being here. And then finally, and she's like, and there's this guy, Keith, here who's coming. I don't know if you know Keith. And he's like, Keith, that's Adrian's real name. Keith, that's Adrian. And and he's like in, and he's kind of like, it's like he knows she's fake, but he's like playing. It's it's wrestling, dude. It's crazy. Uh, By now, we're barely even talking about spirits at this point. Roddy's just pouring his hire out to this woman, talking about the message saying, I love you, that he wrote on a picture that he like brought to where Adrian Adonis drove off the road in a pilgrimage just like a few months before they shot that she already knew about somehow. Um, And she gets him to go over to the fireplace and she like walks him through what happened with the trauma of seeing the ghost. And he says he reveals that he's scared of coming into the room and that he barely comes into the room anymore. And then Kim climbs up to the top rope, metaphorically. As Roddy's heart is truly breaking, she's on the top rope. She hits him with the fucking swan dive. I don't even know how the fuck that she could have Googled this. She says that Adrian is there with them now. And, she's, and, and that he's telling her that when Roddy does come down here and sit, even though he barely comes in here more than like once or twice a year, it's because he's hoping for something to happen. And when she says that, you see it on his face. He's like starts quivering and he can't handle it. And he's ashamed and he admits that when he comes down here and he's hoping for something, he's hoping that he falls asleep and he never wakes up. He's like, how did you know that? Bro, no, that's, and, that's a joke. Yeah. Wow. And it lands, it lands and it's heavy. And it's like, I don't think either one of them was expecting him to say it because when he does say it, Kim is just like, for real? Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. And it's like so crazy. And then Roddy is like now fully bought into the idea that Adrian's here in the room and maybe Kim just has, like, fucking balls of steel, 
or she's the most masterful kayfabe person of all time, or maybe she fucking really does have psychic powers. Who knows? Don't tell me. Don't tell me she embodies Adrian. No, no, she does not speak. She does not about to say. I was like, no. If she, if she, if she starts acting flamboyant, no, 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 I'm drop kicking her. No, 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 no. That does not happen. That does not happen. But instead of like realizing that when he was like, I want to kill myself, like when he's like, I wish I died every day, like instead of backing down. What he what she does instead is she fucking doubles down. She's like, you know what? Adrian is here and he's actually pissed off at you about that. And he's like, what are you thinking, man? He's yelling at you right now. He's telling you in the afterlife that you're still not going to be through with these emotions. You're still going to have to deal with them even if you're dead. And you're going to have to turn around and you're going to have to confront them. And he tells her that the pain is with him literally all the time that he's awake. Uh, and uh, here's what Roddy said about that pain uh, that he needs to face in Gerard's words right here to this fucking medium in his house. Um, I've had big issues with that. These guys that you're talking about when they passed away, it's like I lived, but I should have gone at the same time as them. And now um, they're all gone and I'm lost. But Kim was ready at this point. She knew it was going to happen. She hits him with the fucking finisher, the fucking clothesline of celebrity psychic medium plays just hitting him in the fucking throat with her elbow which for Stop once it. we're gonna have we're gonna have mathis read it again because again he's the he's the salty new new, yeah you're straight out of new york <laughs> so here we go here we go you can try it uh, the same time as the other guys no he just said to me you know you may not know this but they consider you a major hero on the other side they're telling me you're the their hero for what you've done all the good you've been doing for them he said something about this is an even exchange those shadows are Adrian. He's been watching out for your family. He told me to tell you that. So that's not um, that's not something to take lightly, right? There's two different energies at work here. One energy is saying, if you put down your sword, they'll kill you. And Adrian's here telling you, you already won the battle. It's over. There is no more battle, he said. I wasn't going to let that house burn down. It took, him a lo- uh, it took him so long to buy it. And you know what he's telling me now? Make that your damn home. Yeah, so Roddy gets, like, a second epiphany from Adrian Adonis through this psychic medium, who, whether she's magic or not, just gave him one of the wildest and most healing experiences of his life. She even gave him closure with his father, who told her that the only good thing that he ever did was bring Roddy into the world so that he could break the vicious cycle of abuse in his family. And honestly, and it, which he did, and honestly... Whether her advice is just really strong therapist advice, or it's really coming from his dead friends in another realm, he finally has hope. It worked for him. And even though in the end it was really just his own decision that it was real, it doesn't really matter. And if that's not kayfabe, what is kayfabe, right? That's a a tip my therapist gave me. When I was like, I wasn't sure if certain meds were working, but I felt like they might be. She's like, what does it matter? As long as 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 you see an improvement. Exactly. I think, like, that is a weird but true takeaway that a lot of the times when people do, like, the psychic thing or the I talk to dead thing, it doesn't matter, I guess, at the end of the day if it's it's real. If it is, yeah, if it gives you something to take away, just like therapy, where you can walk away with it and be better, right? I'm always concerned when they do, like, unhealthy shit or Or they, they like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But this, I think, in this scenario, whether I believe she has powers or not, I think what she did for the man is a good thing that it gave him some closure on a lot of stuff in his life that was really messed up that he was dealing with. And like, you know, all right, 
Yeah. Either way, he got a healthier way of dealing with his problems. She yeah. also gave him a, a sweet little. She was like, I have a present for you. And she <laughs> gave him like a little dragon necklace that he put on. Like she like put it over his neck and she was like, this is a little dragon necklace. And every time you see it, you can remember you already fought your demons and that you can relax now and you don't have yeah. to be scared. And you can put the sword down. And that's what Adrian. That's what Keith wants for you. And uh, so that really happened. And uh, here's a little last quote uh, from her for Mathis to read uh, to close us out. And uh, here we go. Looking back, when we first met Roddy, he wanted to understand why he was visited by the ghost of his best friend. Many of us, like Roddy, experience tragic loss and affects us so deeply that we are unable to move forward in the land of the living. And sometimes it takes the hand of the dead to reach out and grab our attention to help us heal and move on. I, I very much the hand of the dead to reach out and grab me. Roddy Piper lived peacefully for two more years after that uh, before passing away himself in his summer home in Los Angeles in 2015. Um, and uh, I like to think that uh, he he died a happier man than he was when he was alive. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you guys want to go down a real sad rabbit hole, uh, there is a WWE Network Peacock show where they basically did a Legends House where they got all of these old wrestlers that worked together over several decades uh-huh. and made them live in a house together. Oh my God. And is Rowdy Roddy in there? I believe he is, oh and there's God. a lot of fighting, there's a lot of crying, there's a lot of realness in that show, uh, and it doesn't feel real. But you yeah. can tell, that the, it's like kayfabe on, on worn out bodies. They don't know, they don't know <laughs> if they're in kayfabe or not, basically. Right, right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's pretty sad to watch, but uh, for multiple reasons. But Yeah. Gerard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this tour of the weirdest wrestling enigmas, WWE. And I hope that every wrestler in the WWE and the AEW aren't my enemy now. I love you all. Uh, wrestling is an amazing world I've only barely scratched the surface of. And I had a good time telling you about it. Gerard, where can we send these good people to find more Gerard stuff besides the completion of Superbeard Bros? Tell the world what's going on in your life. Hot Ones uh, style. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. You can find me on Twitch. That one, Video Gamer slash The Completionist. Or you can find me on my new podcast, Friends Per Second, starring Jake Baldino of Gamer Ranks, Lucy James of Giant Bomb and GameSpot, and Ralph of Skill Up. We do uh, videos and podcasts every fortnight. So that's once every other week. Uh, we talk about games, we talk about news, we talk about what we love, what we hate, and everything in between. Did you know that we have a very sizable UK audience, Gerard? Does that give you anything to talk about? Some people living in the UK who may want to see some more Gerard very soon? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I will be... <laughs> thank you, was, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was I'm, press, I'm a press agent, guys. Yeah, thank no, you. No worries. Thank you, yeah. Alex. Uh, I, I have a one-man show called The Completionist Legacy. Uh, I'm doing my, my one and only performance in London, in Camden specifically, at a venue called Dingwalls, uh, September the 24th. It is a Sunday. Uh, tickets are almost sold out, but I'd love for you to show up, uh, especially if you're fans of... Uh, is of, it just of, you on the ticket? Uh, no, it's myself and uh, Catechorist. Catechorist, uh, Jim Caddick is the opening act. He's got uh, 45 minutes before, and then I've got 90 minutes after. Uh, so if you are in that's the area... Night. Yeah, that's a night. It's, it's a night. It's a night. And uh, not not to get too excited, but uh, because we're in London, I've got some, some some friends from some legendary game studios who are coming in person to see the Fantastical show. Fantastical game so, studios. So just so some would say... The last, I don't know what that means. It's the some, last show you should miss. It's going to be fantastic. Some, some, should, some would say that they they only appear very rarely, uh, depending on where 
where you live. So come on yeah. by. It'll be a good time. Thanks for having yeah, me, guys. A lot of fun. I am not Alex, by the way. I am Gerard. Yeah. Take us away. See us Alex live That's in it. London. Patreon.com <laughs> slash Chiluminati Pod. Patreon, get yeah, tickets well. now at Patreon.com slash Chiluminati Pod. See <laughs> us live. To go do a mini-sode over at Patreon.com slash Chiluminati Pod. Uh, and we'll be back next week with uh, the long-awaited Cryptid Grab Bags uh, episode. We're going to do some more cryptids next week. I think people are excited for that. And um, then Jesse, I think, has the week after. Jesse, what? thank you. Jesse, thank you for coming back. It was absolutely insane last week. I don't know if you listened I wanna to it. I want to say I am genuinely considering doing a Jesse Racks Patreon exclusive special. You should. For the last Dude, episode. The reaction got so bad. Someone reported my account for <laughs> suicidal tendencies on Reddit. <laughs> after, after tagging my, me to make sure I read their five paragraph post comparing me to Alex Jones. I was just like. I need to get mods for the subreddit. I am one hundred, dude. I'm doing it. I'm doing a full reaction, dude. It's fucking nuts. Patreon exclusive. If you want to hear everyone looks, Patreon.com. This is to do that, dude. You guys, I think that ten thousand dollar guy just signed on. I think he's here. I think he's ready. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the... I don't know who they are. There's two. What? Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. No. Neo and Trinity. No. I don't understand, and I probably never will. Let me just tell you right now that there's two... Kennedy and Claire you I'm telling you, I think he literally just looked up famous duos. Cheech and Chong. And has been going through the list ever since. I'm trying to dig deep. Which one of you is uh, Dick Powell? Me? Your name's Jesse Cox. <laughs> and Jesse. Like a shooting star across the sky that's actually a UFO.